Welcome to Pixel Tunes Radio, a podcast where we have fun talking about video games and video game music. I'm Mike. And I'm Ed. And this is episode 93, Norin Rad. Yes, we have a special guest with us today. Uh, it was a, a composer that neither one of us were really that familiar with. And then, I knew of him. Yeah, you found Retro City Rampage and you played uh, Do or Die, which was the track that right. just let us in right now. Yep. And then uh, we we didn't play too much else from him, and then we had our fan favorites episode, I think the third one, yep. and someone requested a song from Venture, Venture Kid, Kid, and we heard it, and both of us just looked at each other and were like, oh my god, this is amazing! We, we both uh, did guitar squealing, <laughs> squeals with air guitars and orgasmed at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny, because, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Tim Fallon, you're a huge fan of Iku Mizutani, and right. that song kind of met, like, somewhere in the middle between yep. those two artists, so it was just really cool for both of us to really get into it, so... I reached out to Norrin Rad, Matt Creamer himself, and uh, he agreed to be on our show with us. So, Matt, thank you so much for, for coming on the show with us and, and chatting a little bit about your music and, and sharing some of your favorite stuff. Oh, my pleasure. I'm super happy to be here, guys. You don't you have you have no idea how much I can nerd out about video game music. So, like, I'm I'm really excited to just talk with like a couple of like seasoned veterans here. Like, just uh, hearing your guys' shows and seeing your guys' notes. Like, you guys really know your stuff. Awesome. Well, you were in the right place if you want to nerd out about music. That's for in, sure. Insanely humble right now. So <laughs> thank you. So uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about you and how you got into video game music composition. Where where did you come from? How did you have any professional music training, or was it something you just started as a hobby? No, it was definitely a hobby for me. Uh, I did go to an art school uh, when I was, uh, you know, from grade three to grade ten. Actually, I went to an art school and I went to public school after that. But I never took music, but. You know, uh, they do kind of, in an art school, they do kind of make you think about things a little differently just uh, just by default. And, uh, you know, I, I remember really liking video game music as a, as a kid, so it was just something on the back burner for a really long time. And then it was Vert, actually, was the first guy that I ever heard. I always call him, like, the godfather of NES chiptunes. Yes. He was the yes. first guy <laughs> that I ever heard make his own NES chiptunes. And that was, like, in the early 2000s or maybe even the late 90s. Right. Uh, and that broke my brain like someone making their own <laughs> Nintendo music was just a, such a really novel idea and since I was you know if you think about it Nintendo hadn't been gone for that long at that point and I thought um, I could do that too because he would uh, upload his modules for Modplug yeah, and stuff like files, that yeah. yeah so I could open up those and, and that was a really awesome way to learn how to make my own Nintendo music so I my first stuff like it was just fun it was a hobby for me to like literally open up his files delete everything he had and then write my own music uh, with his <laughs> instruments and uh, I was doing that just as a hobby for a really long time. It's weird. I don't know how to explain why I would want to do that as a hobby. It's like it was a free <laughs> way to make music, you know, like uh, at that time there was no recording gear for home studios yet. Like this right. was the best way to make music other than like open up a like a free copy of Cakewalk or something and draw in yeah. like general MIDI notes or something. Famitracker wasn't around back then, right? Yeah, and if it was, it was a really like makeshift version of it. So it must have been quite a thrill then to have been like co-composer with Vert on Retro City Rampage then. Yeah, you have no idea. There was a point in time where uh, I got I got a hold of him on uh, AIM, uh, which like in Canada <laughs> we, we don't even use AIM in Canada, so I had to like download AIM and use AIM because we, we used ICQ and MSN and then mm -hmm. whatever it turned into after that but AIM was nothing no one no one here uses AIM but I'm like oh he's on AIM so I got <laughs> AIM and like I don't know how, I don't know how I got his contact but like he uh, I had a conversation with him on AIM once the first time I'd ever been able to actually talk with him and uh, he said stuff that broke my brain like he actually made me a better NES composer just from 
me getting to talk to him. Like, before, it was all just a hobby, and I was, like, really amateur about Nintendo music, and I didn't know everything about Nintendo music, and I, at that mm. time, I was like, hey, if I want to add more channels to a Nintendo song, I should just add more channels. Like, I didn't understand exactly why the limitations were important, or, like, what what made it good to, to want to follow the limitations. So after I had a conversation with Vert on AIM, I stopped using extra channels, and I started using the triangle wave as either on or off instead of having any volume fluctuation because that's the way mm. that Nintendo would do it. It's, it's on or off notes. This mind-blowing conversation with Vert like changed the way I wrote music. Basically, from everything before Melodia was before um, Melodia D'Infinita, sorry, the, the first chiptune album I put out. Everything before that was was non-Vert influenced stuff, and then everything after that was Vert influenced. Like from that conversation on AIM, it's almost as if he like poured himself into your brain. <laughs> You know. The essence of yeah. Kaufman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, the, the dude <laughs> is like a, a good fragrance. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah. He's he's definitely one of the you know absolute fan, most fantastic composers VGM has ever seen. We're we, both huge fans of. Him. Yeah, we've we've talked to death about him. Yeah. Exactly. To the point where we have lawsuits going. Like he doesn't want us to. We have cease and desist orders. <laughs> stop it. Just stop it right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, if I can add a little bit, it, this is something ridiculous. Something I've been thinking about. And sorry to like derail the podcast here, but in vert-related form. <laughs> Uh, I feel like there's a couple of composers that came from the chiptune community, and maybe even the video game uh, remix scene as well. There's a couple of composers I, I sort of came up with that I feel they're like modern day... Uh, I hate to say this too because it's so hyperbolic sounding, but I think it's true. They're like modern day Mozarts. Like, I feel like the way that they can express themselves through this particular limitation, or chiptunes in general, or, or just the way they like Vert writes music now for any medium, mm. it's so technical and intricate. And I feel like no one gives these guys the credit. Like another one is Shnabubula. Um, these are amazing musicians that no one gives them the credit because they sound like, you know, the bleeps and the bloops or they're coming from sort of this chiptune background or this retro background. But the, if you analyze the stuff or if you if you know the limitations and you see what they did with them, there's like this extra layer to how impressive it is that they, they create the stuff they do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'd love to create a list. Like, uh, or yeah, how about this? In like 200 years... I hope people still think about like they can they can consider these guys like the classics, you know? Like I feel like right. this is a modern classics that we're we're seeing and we're living and it's hard to recognize it at the moment, but I really feel like these guys, I don't know, they're savants, I guess. Like it's crazy. Way ahead of their league. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. they'll get their recognition soon. You know, like Chibi Tech, Go to 80, like yeah. all these pioneers in mm -hmm. the chiptune scene. Um, I actually do a, a, a chiptune podcast on the side called Impulse Project, and so we celebrate all of these composers. Mm -hmm. You know, we just do a whole show dedicated to them. So that's great. Um, I, I love when you know chiptuners and VGM composers kind of intersect because mm -hmm. that's like both of my interests combined into one. So it's great to be able to like talk to you, who's come from the chiptune scene and also composes VGM. You know, so that's that gets my goat quite a bit. So, um, but why don't we jump into our first track? Sure. Um, this is an NES track that um, that Matt picked. We're gonna kind of to go around robin a little bit matt's picked six tracks this episode and mike and i each picked three of his tracks that we'd like to share so we're going to kind of go like matt then mike then matt then me and kind of spread it all right. out over the show and matt's picks are specifically tracks that have inspired him that he's fans of whereas our tracks are just tracks from from matt exactly specifically exactly so starting off the show is uh, Contra, the original Contra from the NES in 1988. This is Alien's Lair, composed by Hidenori Maizawa, Kiyohiro Sada, and Kazuki Murawaka. Let's hit it.
right, welcome back. That was Contra for the NES. The game came out in 1988. The track was Alien's Lair, and it was by Hidenori Maizawa, Kiyohiro Sada, and Kazuki Murawaka. So, Matt, why, uh, why, why Contra? I assume based on all your NES work that I've heard that you're a big influenced fan from uh, Contra, TMNT, pretty much anything that... Uh, the Konami guys were were putting out, so why specifically this track? This track in particular, uh, it kind of opens up a can of worms that we'll touch on throughout the show, I'm sure, because it's a common theme through all of my, like, inspiration, but there's a, you know, when you have to imagine the music you want to write through these limitations, the Nintendo limitations in this case, like, I, I always picture the composer sitting there, and, and, like, the producer would come in and be like, hey, we want this game to sound like, you know, The Predator or something, the movie, and, like, make it sound movie quality, like, movie budget music, but through this tiny little chip, like, like go ahead and do that for us if you could. And so I, I always picture, like, the composer in this song, this is the last level in the game, you're getting to the alien's lair, it's like, it's like a mix between Predator and Aliens, the movie, they're huge blockbuster movies at the time, and this is, like, his attempt at writing, like, an orchestral hectic score and and when you when you break down orchestral music a lot of times like there's not a time signature that uh really is like it's not 4-4 like if you break down a lot of like really hectic action sequences they want to mickey mouse the music so it sort of matches what's on screen so a lot of times the time signature is just like well whatever goes and so it's kind of like an old bugs bunny movie at that point or a bugs bunny show where like every movement bugs bunny makes is kind of like emphasized in the music so that's what they call mickey mousing um, but with this song, like, you notice that the time signature is all over the place with this track. It's like 5-4, uh, it's like 7-8, it's, it's doing a bunch of stuff, like, every section is a different time signature, and... Yeah. And when I listen to it, and, and especially how hectic the notes are, like, you can very much tell that this is a last level, uh, like, the final level in the game, and, you know, I just feel like this was his attempt at writing an epic orchestral conclusion to, like, an action movie in nintendo chiptune format and and especially with contra which was 1988 or 87 in the japanese release they didn't really know how to make echo notes yet like this was a very fundamental kind of soundtrack like this is just as like in the history of nintendo music they eventually started learning more and more techniques to make it sound a little better so like Mm. we were talking earlier before the show started about uh tmnt3 right that's where they knew all the techniques like they knew how to make echoes they knew like how to do little vibrato techniques and Mega Man would do this too like where they would they would actually have a sustained note but like after the note first plays for a second they cut the audio for a split second then bring the note back and they'll have a bunch of staccato notes like and so those little gaps in the audio they actually create texture in the the sound so they learned a lot of stuff uh, is what I'm saying like by by the 90s but in 1988 with Contra they hadn't really learned that stuff yet so this is them figuring it out still. Like it's, uh, you can start comparing it to the trends at the time, or or things that they'd figured out at the time. So Nintendo is really great for that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I have to take a breath. Um, <laughs> like if you, if you think about Zelda, for for example, too, Zelda had no echoes. Like it was just the notes and yeah, like maybe some vibrato. Straight and up, that's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible that they could write these uh, memorable melodies that had no texture. Like it was just the notes themselves. Then right. by the time Zelda two rolls around every note has vibrato on it's like they just found the vibrato button on the nes they're like oh yeah that's texture let's <laughs> let's have texture all over the place so contra was a an interesting demonstration of like action music where they didn't have these techniques yet but they were just just learning it at this point and uh, there's a there's a good interview with uh h Mezawa, which his name is h Mezawa in the credits so i always call him h Mezawa. <laughs> um, there's an interview with him where he actually talks about that echo technique where 
you basically only have so many channels to work with when you're when you're writing NES music. So to make it sound like there's reverb or echoes on your uh, notes, instead of like having two channels play the same riff, like the first stage in the Batman NES game, that's a good example of where both square waves are playing the same riff, and the, the second one is just a little quieter and a little delayed, uh, so it's a literal delay. Right. Yeah. yeah, I love that effect. Yeah, it's a great effect, especially when you have a lead that is so good that like both channels have to play it. It's really funny that you mentioned Batman for the NES, because I was actually going to mention Naoki Kodaka. If you listen to some of his earlier work on like the Famicom, for example, uh, uh, Wings of Medulla is a really good example of this. If you've ever heard that soundtrack, it's a very simplistic sounding soundtrack from him. And when you compare it with later stuff that he worked on, like Batman or, uh, you know, Gremlins 2 or really like like any of the stuff. Super Spy that, Hunter. That yeah, stuff, Super yeah. Spy Hunter. Like any of the stuff that he worked on later on, the sound specifically sounds completely different. I mean, mm-hmm. Wings of Medulla sounds like very flat sounding mm-hmm. and uh, the composition is great, but it just feels very like blank, very flat, very sterile. But then as these composers you know learned more about the hardware or even like drivers like different drivers being introduced or whatnot yeah. different techniques you tend to notice a lot of changes yeah. with the music a lot of it is thinking outside the box too yeah. because you know for the first two or three years of the NES you know at least in in the, in the in North America's life you had like you know your triangles your bass your square waves are your lead melodies you know your your drums if you had any at all were on the noise channel sure. nobody was thinking outside the box yeah. nobody's like these could be different instruments. These could be configured mm-hmm. differently. We could we could create new sounds with combinations of these channels. And so I think you know Contra exceeded very well just using those five channels, mm-hmm. but just using those in the traditional sense. But then, like you said, Matt, as as time went on, you know, with like Ninja Turtles and stuff, we start getting like uh, we played a, a Brooklyn Bridge is falling down that really like bluesy guitar mm-hmm. style NES track, which was using the triangle and the and the square kind of in tandem with each other to create this really kind of bluesy guitar sound. So mm-hmm. those are the techniques that come later on that, that this this game didn't really feature at all and it wasn't even featured at all in this era right, right. in total. Yeah. That's why, yeah, the eras for NES is very, like, I always look to see where the year was because, like, you can take Zelda and, and add more appreciation to it because at that time, just the knowledge base for, for how to make the music, like, the composers were just... I always picture just these, like, programmers that are, like forced to do this impossible task, write this amazing music and, and make it memorable for all time and have this like chip, this programming chip that, you know, if you think about what the Nintendo was, it was like a synthesizer that was just super cheap. Like all you can do is a square wave and a triangle wave. And, you know, compared to the keyboards that these these composers probably had access to at the time, it was probably super limited. And it was probably a very frustrating thing for them to have to work with these limitations and, and, and know that it, if I could just use my keyboard, it would sound so much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So they had to work within these limitations, and the stuff they came out with is is like remarkable. Absolutely. This actually rolls right into a great question from uh, one of our fans, Emily, who hosts the other VGM podcast, VGM Jukebox. She asked, why do composers limit themselves with these retro chips? Why do you limit yourself with retro chips nowadays instead right. of like going big, for like, you know, booming 30, 30 square channels right. or something like that? You know, what's the thought process behind wanting to create authentic retro style music in the modern era? Oh, that's a great question. There's a, there's a lot of answers to uh, I think every chiptune artist would probably give you a different answer as well. 
which is kind of what makes chiptune interesting because everyone kind of has their own reason for wanting to do it for me personally when i first started hearing vert stuff vert was always kind of on the on the line like he he did a really cool contra mod file that had like actual recorded guitar in it and it was mm -hmm. super like sample it was still samples because it was a it was a module but like he used guitar in it with nintendo sounds and that was like you know if you think about when he did that like 2000 or something that's really far forward thinking and so i was always more interested in like the more intense nintendo music like if you think about the, the one we just played the contra track like that's a that's a pretty intense nintendo song compared to mario or something like, for sure it's clearly yeah. meant to be an intense song and uh, I've always been more fascinated by how intense the Nintendo music could sound. So when it comes to the limitations for me, one of the things I like is you can try and take these limitations that everyone has to work with. Like, here, here's another reason why Nintendo specifically gets a, a lot of uh, tread. Every, like, legit Nintendo soundtrack was basically made on the same sounding patch on the same sounding synth like mm. if you if you want to picture it that way so imagine if like in the 80s or or nowadays let's imagine nowadays everyone has one vst that they can use and it has like three presets on it the different square waves and, and stuff like that and then you say like all right now write different music than the guy next to you see if you can do that and so the nintendo is like they all had the same uh building blocks and if you think about how different every nintendo track sounds even throughout the years and every composer kind of has their own little thumbprint of like this is what my version or my interpretation of these limitations sound like so you know when it comes to the limitations why i like to work with them is is because it gets rid of the instrument itself having an effect on the notes like it basically just becomes the thumbprint of like i, I always kind of say like what's your musical instinct and that's like if a note is playing on a keyboard or you're hearing a note what's the next note you want to hear? And so chiptune music for me is just that embodied. It's like you have the fundamental tone. We got rid of the instrument. Like it's not a guitar. It's not right. a thing. It's just a tone. It's a note. What note do you want to hear next? And so I feel like that's why, uh, you know, guys like Vert and Schnabubula that are like modern day Mozarts, I feel, in, in how they write. Like the note they want to hear next, I think is amazing. Like I think they constantly do amazing things with what the next note is supposed to be. And so yeah, chiptune music for me, that's kind of why I like those limitations in particular. Hmm. Um, but there's reasons to, there's other reasons to like those limitations too, aesthetic reasons and, and nostalgia and stuff like that. But yeah, that's yeah. the right. main one for me. So yeah, and, and I totally agree with you. It's like kind of removing the audience judgment based on the medium that you're using and just focusing on what you're doing with that medium mm -hmm. instead of the medium itself. So that's yeah, very, exactly. very cool. So you want to move into our next track? Yes. So we're going to revisit what we came in with in the beginning of the podcast, Retro City Rampage. Uh, the track is Joyride, and again, it's by Norrin Rad, a.k.a. Matt Creamer. Excellent.
welcome back. We are here with Norinrad, a.k.a. Matt Creamer, and that was Retro City Rampage. The track was Joyride, and that was written by the man himself, Norin Rad. I love this track, and I gotta say, <laughs> um, long-time listeners of the podcast are gonna immediately know what I'm gonna jump to, <laughs> and Ed's gonna tell you as well. Ed, what is it? Uh, it's either galloping bass yes. or harmonizing leads. Yes, yes, totally. <laughs> and, and, and I just, I love how... Um, so here's my story that is, it, the very first experience that I think I had, I, I may have heard some of your work on possibly OCR Remix. It was before Retro City Rampage that I definitely heard your music. And it might have been OCR Remix. Did you ever put anything out on there? Oh, this is embarrassing. Yeah, I have some songs on o, you, uh, Overclock Remix. Um, you did. I, I could have sworn that you did. I may even have some like really, really old stuff. Because I've been listening to OCR Remix for years, like probably since like I think the very first track I ever heard was uh, Protricity doing like the Mega Man X uh, Spark Mandrel theme. Oh, that's old as hell. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah like yeah. Super- that's, that's like an original OG member of the Overclock Remix. <laughs> oh, 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 definitely. Oh, I was one of one of at least the first, I'd say thousand. So I go way way back in terms of you know remixes and all that type of stuff, but. When I first started playing Retro City Rampage, I was following the game for a very long time. When it finally came out, I waited a little bit because they announced a Wii version, and I was like, I have the Wii, I gotta get it on the Wii, like, I gotta support it. And I think I reached out to the developer, uh, I can't remember his name, Chris, I think? Uh, Brian Provinciano. Brian Provinciano, that's right. And I reached out to Brian, was like, hey, I really want to review this, I write for a website, uh, retrocollect.com, can you send me a copy? He was like, yeah. So he sent me a copy. I knew I was going to love it. I reviewed it, loved the game. But I remember playing through the game, and whenever your track specifically, like, don't get me wrong, I love Vert, I love, um, what was the other composer? Freaky on DNA. Freaky DNA, Freaky DNA yeah. that's right. I love all of their stuff, but specifically when your tracks, which are always, almost always full of, like, galloping bass, really awesome, like, shreddy guitar, and I would drive around in the car listening to that music, and when... I knew I had to get out of the car and start the mission or like go do something or go to a, a spot where the music would stop, but I would just keep going in circles listening to <laughs> the music. It's the, the digital equivalent of waiting in your driveway when right. a song on the radio is, is awesome. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I'm just like driving around listening to like uh, Do or Die and uh, uh, Dance Off and all these types of tracks that were playing while you were in the car specifically, and Joyride just... It brings me back when I listen to it to those memories of me just driving in circles, hitting pedestrians, collecting <laughs> coins, and just like <laughs> waiting it out until I got sick enough of the loop to be like, all right, I guess I can go play the game now. That's funny as hell. That's <laughs> awesome. Wow, that's crazy. So, Matt, what was your uh, influence or your, your direction in terms of creating a lot of the songs that you did make for, for Retro City Rampage? Uh, every song, like the way I write Nintendo music is... I usually start with like a little idea such as galloping bass or something and the song sort of forms around the idea uh, because like I said in the last segment there's a when you get rid of the instruments like when you have a guitar in your hand it's a little easier to write a galloping riff because you can you can you can visualize what the next note should sound like you can mm-hmm. really easily like oh yeah or even the type of guitar you're holding you'd be like yeah, I feel badass holding this thing <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah with Nintendo music you, you have to sort of decide ahead of time because there's none of that sort of you don't you're not holding a guitar in your hand you got all these chip sounds so you have to decide ahead of time I want to try to do a, uh, like a galloping riff here and then from that it sort of spawns like okay what do the drums sound like during a galloping part or like 
you know, how would Iron Maiden do this? You know, you have to kind of always have this uh, sort of mm-hmm. protocol that you, you form. So every song kind of has a different protocol, and sometimes it's a time signature. Sometimes it's, um, I'll, I'll pick a scale or a mode. I'll be like, all right, I want to write in the uh, Lydian mode. How about that? And so, uh, <laughs> you know, the songs sort of form around that. So that was definitely the theme for that one. I wanted to write it like a galloping sort of, not power metal, but like the new wave of British heavy metal sort of track. Sure. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. So I got to ask, since you did work with other composers with Freaky DNA and, uh, of course, Vert, um, how does composing with other people who you may not be living or working within that same area work out for you? Like, uh, for example, on Retro City Rampage, you were in different locations physically than the other composers. So how did that work? Were, were you like kind of bouncing back and forth with ideas or was it more like, oh, you take these tracks, I'll take these tracks? Like, how did that work? Uh, well, with uh, Retro City Rampage, I was in the same city as Brian Provinciano and uh, Freaky okay. DNA. So if we ever really needed to meet up, we could we could do that. But yeah, Vert was, uh, you know, I never actually met him uh, during the course of that project. We never got to be at the same conventions at the same time. So yeah, I, I still have not met Vert, uh, even though I have worked with him on a soundtrack. But um, there wasn't a lot of like cross-pollination between... Uh, songs, even mm-hmm. though we all worked with uh, Modplug for this, uh, all three of us, mm-hmm. um, that was actually why I got contacted to work on the project because I was basically a Vert clone. Like I made music the way he made music, and he <laughs> made it on. <laughs> he made it, and that's by the way, like a super flattering thing, even to oh, be yeah. a Vert clone. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> like I consider myself like second wave vert. Like he was first wave, and then like okay, I'm second wave. Actually, second gen. Yeah, second it's gen. like it's like Transformers when like Optimus Prime died, and they had like you were like the um, Rodimus Prime. You, you yeah. were like Rodimus or like Hot Rod. Yeah, Hot Rod. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the thing is for my chip tunes, I was always trying to sound like Vert, but I have no idea how he did his sound. So the protocol is like I want to sound like Vert, but if I don't actually know how to sound like Vert, then what you have is my interpretation of what Vert sounds like. Right. So that was it's always kind of been my interpretation of what vert sounds like that's why i think i'm like i'm second gen but like no way in no way do i come close to the way vert sounds but that's kind of what gives my stuff its sound because this is my interpretation my genuine interpretation i have no idea how he did the stuff he did Mm -hmm. so speaking of vert and sound and like and like senses we have a question from a listener from uh, Ben, also known as The Dyad, and he asks, uh, which you may not be able to answer at this point, but maybe you can because you're a user of Essence of Vert. What does Vert smell like? What does Jake Kaufman smell like? No, uh, I can't. I, I wish I knew. I, I've never met him, but I know that I will meet him eventually, and he's he's due for one big bear hug, that's for sure. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but, you know, I, I picture him just like... I don't know. I picture him smelling like a rock concert because I, I I feel like he's he just he embodies because he can play live as well. He's he's he can yeah. right on the keys. I've seen him live actually, and he's really? great. Yeah, he is really. I saw him at Magfest a while back. Did you smell him from there? I did not smell him, <laughs> but if I were to put a smell to him, it would be like whatever disco smelled like in the '70s, mixed with the smell of. Jewish prayer wine and <laughs> apples and honey from Rosh Hashanah service. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Very yeah. A little specific. bit of Old Spice. Yeah. The reason I say that is I've, I've reached out to Ver, or Jake Kaufman and I've mm-hmm. talked to him on a specific... I can't remember what it was, but I think I left him a comment on he, his website. He uh, did, a, did a Jewish style remix of a Mega Man song or something on he OC He did, remix. but he also did another song on his website that was named something Jewish. I can't remember. And I reached out to him somewhere, somehow, and I was like, this was amazing, 
by the way, are you Jewish? Or I'm assuming with the name like Kaufman, potentially you are, because my last name's Levy and I'm Jewish. So I, I asked him specifically, like, you know, what experience do you have? And he was like, yeah, my uh, my father was a, a cantor uh, in in uh, synagogue. Hmm. So he obviously has that kind of background. So uh, that's to me what he smells like is is <laughs> that, that cause, and he does he throws a lot of that Jewish style music. A lot of those like influences do kind of rub off. Plus he has that just like awesome funk disco sound that he goes for with a lot of stuff like Mighty Switch Force yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, he's so good at, at combining them. Yes. So about what are the question I had for you as as far as Retro City Rampage goes, did you guys all share the same bank of NES sounds to make sure you guys all sounded cohesive within the sound? track or did you um, make your own NES sounds for your own tracks? You know, we really should have done that. That, that would have made a lot more <laughs> sense, but uh, we didn't. Uh, we all had our own stuff coming into it and uh, mine are a little too bass heavy, uh, just based on the, the template that I was using. So uh, Freaky mm. DNA, he mastered it and he did all the mixing. So mine sound a little like they had, they needed the most touch up in in post, sort of. Um, so mm. yeah, it would have would have helped. Like just now that I make music for games on my own, I would never want there to be like multiple different templates for the Nintendo music. But I guess in the in the sense that they wanted to make it sound more like Grand Theft Auto, when you're listening to the radio, there's like wildly different. Like here's a, it'd be like playing a game that has a Capcom style song, then a Konami style song, and yeah, know, like, good point. So I guess it works out. We we fluked out on that one, but you're right. I I would have loved <laughs> to have one unified sound bank. Cool. So let's jump into our next track. What do you got for us? Sure. This next pick is from Matt. It is Shadow of the Colossus. The track is called The Farthest Land. Came out on the PS2 in 2005, written by Ko Otani.
And we're back. That was The Farthest Land from Ko Otani from the game Shadow of the Colossus, which came out in 2005 on the PS2. And Matt, I got to say, I, I was not expecting uh, a track like this from you because a lot of your music is so energetic. But this is just it's so beautiful. And, and I'm not as familiar with Shadow of the Colossus as everybody tells me I should be. Oh, so you really should be. Yeah. Where, where I'm not even, but you should be. Where does this <laughs> where does this track play in the game. It feels like it's like something near like the end where things get really sad or something like that. Oh, good good question. This is actually, uh, this is maybe one of the hidden gems of the soundtrack in that it doesn't play during the game. This plays during the attract mode. Oh. So mm. it's kind of another story too. Um, for this track, the reason why I picked it one of the reasons why I picked this track is because if, if I were to pick the tracks that you guys would have probably expected me to pick, the whole thing would have been like bombastic orchestral crazy tracks. And I was like, I, I right. started doing that. I'm like, no, nah, I got to diversify this list a bit because uh, <laughs> I'm not just like a, you know, I don't just like one type of music, even though that's, I usually tend to write more bombastic music. Yeah, one of the reasons I picked this track is because the game itself, the story of the game, I feel like this song embodies everything about why this game is an amazing game. Uh, this is like a top five game all time for me, uh, Shadow of the Colossus. Oh, wow. Okay. So, like, the story of the game, without spoiling anything, like, the, the very opening sequence is you're on this horse, and there's, a like, a female on the horse that looks injured. Like, she's draped over the back of it, and you're sort of, like, trotting along towards um, the farthest land. And you get to this, like, gateway, and you walk through this gateway, and you're, you're fi you find yourself on this impossibly large bridge that goes all the way into the center of what is the sacred land. And the, the the game map in this this game is humongous. Like, think bigger than Grand Theft Auto. Like, it's a humongous mm -hmm. uh, map. And so this bridge takes you all the way to the center of the map because in the game uh, mythology, you're never supposed to step foot in the sacred land. And so that's why this bridge is here, that you can get to the shrine in the middle without having to step on the, the sacred land. So you can imagine how big this bridge is. And so the whole story of the game is that, you know, he's taking this injured female to this shrine for whatever reason. And uh, as the game unfolds, you find out that, like, there's there's some pretty um, dramatic reasons why he would choose to, like, violate the sacred land and, and do all the things he's doing. So when you think about the game, it's not about toppling these colossi and, and being this ultimate hero. It's like a really somber uh, reason why the, the character would, would be doing all the stuff in the game. And I feel like this song, it like, if I, you know, you get me in the right mood, I can definitely uh, crack out a couple tears to this song just based on the game alone. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah it's, for a, sure. it's a special track for sure. Yeah, I definitely love like the string instruments and then those those kind of like uh, almost pan flutes or like almost penny whistles that come in towards mm -hmm. the end. They're they're just beautiful. This sounds like if an Italian person took Italian instruments, went to New Zealand and wrote a song. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can get that. Right? I can get that yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's that's what it. I got a very Italian vibe. Like, There's a lot like of like any Ennio Marconi uh, scores right. Lord of the Rings. Or right. Something yeah. Like that. yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Yep. It's 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 got a lot of like flourishes that kind of go through a lot of like string harmonies and everything. It's very very interesting and very unique. And I I felt like the game was very empty. Yes. Like all you pretty much have is <clears throat> yeah. is the 
bosses and that's yep. it. Um, so it, it's it's almost to me it's like if Zelda Two was more modern and completely devoid of enemies. Yeah, yeah, yeah and just it, had bosses. I think that's why you know a lot of people really love this soundtrack, and I think that's one of the reasons why because the game is so empty. Right. The music kind of has to speak for the game, right. and I feel like especially with this track, you mm -hmm. know, if it were just a, a guy carrying a woman over a bridge, you know, you wouldn't exactly know what to feel in that kind of an instance. But the song really tells you this is not a good situation. This is a guy who's doing this because there's some sort of sacrifice that's involved or something like right, that. Right. So, you know, is that, is that the same kind of feeling that you got from this this track, Matt? Yeah, it, like the, like you said, the game doesn't have any enemies in it, and it doesn't have any music until you actually reach one of the bosses. So there's no enemies in the game. There's no music in the game until you get to the bosses, and that's what makes this game so special because why then would this guy violate the sacred land what is his purpose in there? Like it become it, it like amplifies and it resonates. Like why is he here doing all these things? And you you get this sort of sense that like nothing is on the sacred lands. Like you're not supposed to be there. There's no creatures. There's no houses. And for some reason he's there and he's like laying waste to these uh, essentially like these guardians that sort of protect the sacred land. And it's it just makes me want to know more and more. You get out of it what you put into it, sort of. And right. so when I played this game the first time, I had headphones on and I was like playing the game with like just listening to the ambience. Like when you go through the, mm. the hill, the hilly valleys, like you hear wind going past you and stuff. It's like amazing sounding super uh it just puts you there like sort of very atmospheric atmospheric yeah, for yeah. sure it's it's uh yeah that's funny so it's like basically the people online you were saying were essentially searching for the shen shen long of uh <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of, yep. of shadow of the colossus yeah <laughs> very cool All right. um so I guess we'll jump into our next track. Yeah, moving from a game that has almost no characters to a game that has a ton of characters. Yes. This next track is from the game Swap Heroes, and this is Stage 4, Lost Sands by Matt Creamer.
And we're back. That was stage four, Lost Sands from the game Swap Heroes. It's a mobile only game. And so this is a, a song that you composed in the style of SNES, correct? So not many chip tuners kind of kind of go for that. So what, what made you choose uh, that particular sound for this soundtrack? Uh, that was the developer. They, they wanted some SNES stuff and I was very happy to oblige. <laughs> I was gonna ask, why do you think that there's a lack of Super NES uh, style VGM these days. I mean, in most cases, it's all like NES inspired, Genesis inspired, uh, but you don't generally hear a lot of Super NES stuff. Do you do you know why that is? I maybe have some theories. You know, the um, Super Nintendo used samples, so it was a sample based system. I feel like there's there's two things here. One, I think people have trouble finding the samples. Like, there's decent sort of fan-made archives for, for samples out there, but they're uh, they're not very robust. Like, if you're lucky, you can find, like, a Chrono Trigger kind of sample bank, and so mm. you can kind of use similar samples from Chrono Trigger, but not a lot of deep samples there, because in order to get the samples, you kind of have to know how to, you know, dabble in some of the grayer areas of, uh, like, ROM hacking stuff, and yeah. so... With Super Nintendo stuff, to, to make it sound authentic, it's weird, because built into the sound chip was this echo effect that they could use. It's this very iconic sound that the Super Nintendo had, and I feel like people would probably just want to use normal samples instead of Super Nintendo samples, like orchestral sounds, uh, because at this point you're kind of writing an orchestral song or something that isn't good sounding. Like, it's kind of this weird way, like, like we were talking about with the Nintendo limitations, Everyone had the same level playing field. It's like, use this triangle wave, use this square wave. But with the Super Nintendo, you're like, you can use a, like a slap bass sound now if you want, and you can use a guitar sound if you want. They're just kind of really bad sounding yeah. on their own, you know? Like, they're like one of the things, Street Fighter 2, for example, I don't think has good instruments. I think it has really bad instruments, like from a, <laughs> from a quality standpoint, but they did amazing compositions. So it, it almost makes it more difficult and more frustrating. Like, ah, some of these sounds are not what I want to hear. Yeah. So, you know, with this song in particular, I really had to hand select the best of the best. Like, here's what I find is the best sounding SNES string, or, uh, like ensemble sound. Here's mm -hmm. what I find is the best sounding uh, trumpet sound, uh, best sounding like sort of guitar strum sounds. And I like I put all these the best sounds together. So I, I just think Super Nintendo is maybe a harder thing for people to wrap their head around because with, with Family Tracker and stuff like you can use this already built in thing to make Nintendo music. And with Super Nintendo stuff, you have to sort of adhere to your own limitations, which is something I'm already very good at because I, I did a lot of mod plug stuff. So yeah, it's, it's a hard one. I don't know. I wish more people would. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's because the SNES doesn't really have like that like quote unquote that sound, you know, mm. capital T, capital S, because mm. you're, you're you're using samples, so sure. it, it can sound like almost anything. You know, you compare something Tim Fallon did to something Koji Kondo did, and it's like you would never know they were Nine on the day. same system. So yeah. I think when 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 composers want to do something like that, they say, okay, well I can go uh, Super Nintendo limitations, mm. but the average listener isn't going to say, oh, hey, this must be Super Nintendo, when they'll definitely recognize NES or definitely recognize, you know, FM uh, mm -hmm. Genesis stuff. So right, right. I think it's a matter of that, that kind of recognition, too. But that being said, I did recognize, at least to me, it sounded like there was a lot of, like, stuff from, like, Secret of Mana, a lot of that, like, Squaresoft-style mm -hmm. instruments in here. Should have went for those terribly but awesome, obnoxious uh, trumpet sounds from Final Fight. Yeah. <laughs> commuted, <laughs> commuted French <laughs> horn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or the yeah. slap bass from... Yeah, next time, for sure. Yeah. Next time, yeah. Or the slap bass from Paperboy 2. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> the Seinfeld bass. 
Uh, so this actually leads into a question that we got from uh, one of our fans listeners, Cam Childs, and he asks, is there a certain mindset or set of guidelines you follow when trying to achieve eight or 16-bit sound? Uh, yeah, it's for me, like I can't speak for other composers, but for me, it's always about, like, so if I'm doing Super Nintendo, I'm gonna open up the best Super Nintendo tracks, like my favorite tracks, and try and see exactly how they made them sound the way that they did. So mm-hmm. what I did for Swap Heroes and what I did for Treasure Buster and, and what I did for actually the 8-bit stuff as well is I'll load up the tracks themselves in Winamp. I'm still using Winamp. Classic skin for life. Yes. yes. Um, you guys know. Oh, uh, yes. So I'll load up a track and I'll, I'll actually rip it. Um, so, you know, you like, are, you, are you guys familiar with NSF files and VGZ yes. files? And, of course, and yeah. SPC I, files, I, okay. I, I bathe in them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm just making sure because yeah, sometimes like they don't. And I have to like enlighten people. Like, oh my god, I'm about to like explode your world. So I'll open those up in Winamp and I'll actually open it up eight times. Like for the Super Nintendo, I'll open up eight versions of it and then I'll record them all. Like it's just the way I try and do it quicker. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll rip each channel to its own WAV file mm-hmm. and then I'll open that up in Cubase and then I'll actually see where they're combining instruments and how they utilize their instruments and and what they were doing in order to achieve the exact sound that they were. And I also open up a... I've been using this program called... Let me just open it now. SPC Tool, which is a like a gray area ROM hacking tool, but it lets you open up the music from SPC files and you can actually see the exact uh, specifications for like what they did for the instruments, like how much echo was on it and things like that. So the same thing with Genesis as well. Uh, That's basically my process. So it gets a little harder when I'm doing like PlayStation stuff, like PlayStation was sample based as well, Mm -hmm. unless it was CD based, which some games had as well. You can't really break those down as well because there's not as good ROM hacking tools. So it's harder to break down exactly how a sound sounds or why it sounds a certain way. And that gets really difficult but the with these old consoles it's perfect because you can you can break it down and see exactly what their uh, what their thought process was that's awesome and that's cool. you know that seems to be like a little more involved than you know because with family tracker it's like you don't really have to worry so much about that because those limitations are already kind of there for you unless you want to emulate a specific sound from a specific game you know you're always within the confines of what you know an nes can do so i think maybe a lot of composers that you know maybe might want to stay away from the Super Nintendo just because there is so much uh, education going on and the guys that just kind of want to like just get right down and get into writing the music maybe might shy away from that a little bit. So it's great that, that you put that work and that effort into into doing it because the results were amazing. Like I feel like I, you know you can import this song into a Super Nintendo ROM and, and you know be able to be played very easily without you know being able to be you know edited or anything like that. That's that's very cool. So a little bit about this game, Swap Heroes. It's kind of like a just like an infinite RPG battle. Is okay. is that how it goes? Have, have have you played this game much, Matt? Uh, I played it in the development uh, while I was basically, I played it to see how the music should work with it. So I've never gotten really far in actually any of the games I work on. I, I like, I just don't have the time to, to keep, like, I'm, I'm always writing more music. Right, yeah. right. So I, I've only played it uh, sort of in a test phase or, or sort of the debug mode. Okay. Yeah, this, this, this game is actually kind of fun. It's like, so if you imagine like, you know, you got four people in your party, I think it goes up to six people in your party mm-hmm. and enemies just keep coming at you. You have to basically figure out how to defeat these enemies. It's turn-based, so it's kind of like, like Final protect, Fantasy style. Protect me, knight, but turn-based. Uh, not really, because you never actually move. It's okay. always just a static screen. Oh, okay. you beat a series of enemies or more enemies. Like think of like a survival mode in Final Fantasy, something okay. like that. Okay. And in between every battle, you are able to use the experience you gain to level your your characters up and stuff. So huh. if you really like RPG battles but don't really like 
walking around the map and encountering random enemies or reading <laughs> right. stories. Like yeah, this yeah. is a this is a good game to okay. play. Okay. But this it, it fits. I mean, this this music definitely fits that kind of uh, it, like RPG battle, but not to the point where it's like constantly like go go go, got to beat these enemies. Right. It's got kind of an RPG story feel mixed with kind of a battle feel. So it gives you mm. a very very cool kind of combination between the two. It's something you can listen to on repeat almost ad infinitum without mm. getting tired of it. That's perfect. Mission accomplished. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move into our next track. Speaking of Super Nintendo, this is Contra 3. It came out in 1992 for the Super NES. The track is Streets of Neo City. And it's by Miki Higashino, Masanori Adachi, and Tapi Iwase. All right. Back that was Contra 3, the 1992 Super NES masterpiece. The track was The Streets of Neo City, and it was by Miki Higashino, Masanori Adashi, and Tapi Iwase. Uh, now, we're not going to talk too much about the composers, in all honesty, just because we've talked to death about them before. If you want a better understanding of uh, their previous work, uh, check out episode 14 of Pixel Tunes Radio, uh, which was the best of Contra. God, that was episode 14? 14. Jeez. I know. Feels like yesterday. I know. We're grandpas of VGM. <laughs> so this, I consider this one of like the most iconic one of SNES yeah. soundtracks and one of the most iconic SNES songs. I mean, I think everybody and their mom owned Contra 3 Definitely. growing up. So, you know, this is one of the first tracks you hear play in the game. The city's on fire. It's burning. You've got these like huge like violin dun 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 like drums. cellos going in the background and the, I never noticed fantastic. the drums until I listened to it through headphones just now. Yeah. Those drums are just so booming. Just boom 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 boom. It's it's really like just full sounding. Yeah. So Matt, I mean we just talked about Super Nintendo music and your emulation of Super Nintendo music. Oh, by the way, which which uh, which software did you use to compose in the Super Nintendo style? Uh, we, I don't think we asked you that last last break. Uh, I used Cubase, so just used okay. Contact, uh, which is a sampler, and loaded up my own Super Nintendo style sounds. So you can definitely tell, like a lot of that echo and a lot of those kind of techniques that you were talking about can definitely be applied to this 
uh, particular song. Why, why did you choose this particular song to share with us today? A couple reasons. One, uh, one that we haven't touched on yet is I feel like this song is the evolution of the Contra Aliens layer. Like, I feel like that was mm. what, if you wanted to write, like, the, the producer would come into the, the composer's studio and be, like, saying, I need you to write an epic action orchestral track, and here's the limitations that we have with our soundware. Go ahead and, like, have at it. So the, the mm -hmm. Aliens layer was what the NES composer would sort of come up with, and this is what the Super Nintendo composer would come up with, and... They had the ability now to use samples, so they could have, like, timpani hits, bum 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 They could hit the sounds they wanted, but it was just sort of lo-fi sounding. Yeah, that's that's one thing I really like about the song, is you can put those two tracks together that we've, we've done in this episode, and, and hear the evolution of why Super Nintendo was, uh, you know, now you're playing with more power, you know? Like, this was, <laughs> this was the example. Like, when we're kids yes. and we're playing this... That sounded like an action soundtrack to us. It went from sounding like bleeps and bloops to now I hear timpani hits and, and string sounds. This feels uh, mature or, or something like that. This this feels mm -hmm. like the next level. Yeah. And so that's one reason why I picked it. And the, the time signatures, too, in this song are, are bananas. Like, it's, it's very much like, like the Predator had, you know, an action soundtrack with crazy time signatures and stuff because that's the way action soundtracks usually are. And, uh, yeah, this track is just buck wild. I love this track. It's, it's weird when it comes to Super Nintendo music because I generally, when I first started playing Super Nintendo, uh, most of the music all sounded very similar to me. I, I'd say that there's two examples that really stood out to me in the beginning of the Super Nintendo's library that made me kind of light up and go, oh man, like this is just a game changer for video game music. Even back then when I was a little kid, uh, probably about you know 10 or so, 10 or 11, and one uh, would be the final fight, which we talked about just before the French horn, the trumpets, those instruments sound, that sounded like real instruments, definitely. Yeah. And then the strings in Super, Super Castlevania, Castlevania 4, <laughs> yeah, when uh, especially that boss battle, when you'd hear the strings kind of like quiet down yeah, yeah. and then rise back up, like nah, still that nah. remains oh, yeah, one of yeah, the yeah. best. Best instrument sets oh, yeah. of any Super Nintendo game, and it's such an early game too. And I know. It's like nobody's come close to sounds that sound that uh, like uh, like rich. real. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So yeah, one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. Definitely. Well, you know, in my uh, in my process of, of studying the Super Nintendo music for Swap Heroes, I kind of had like this attitude going into. Super Nintendo composition, like from a thematic standpoint, I thought that it was too easy. They gave you the, uh, mm -hmm. they gave you the samples now. You like the the struggle is over with, with NES. If I want to do a power chord, I have to come up with this sort of way to, to make it happen, where I'm using multiple channels. And I found out that like inverting the power chord is where it sounds the best. But yeah, that's a story for another time. So with the Super <laughs> Nintendo, I just found that like uh, it was a little too easy. Like now I can just use a power chord sample. Like what's the big deal? So when I when I actually started investigating how Super Nintendo music was made for Swap Heroes, that's when I started to learn that, it, especially these early games like Contra 3, they were using the same exact mentality that they were for the NES. They they were just doing it on sort of like a, the next, what's the word here? Uh, it was like the next level, basically. Uh, so mm -hmm. they only had so many instruments for this soundtrack, but you, you get the impression that there's tons and tons of instruments, but they actually only have about 10 samples for this soundtrack and everything was made with those 10 samples so it was just like the nintendo where like well we only have a couple square wave duty cycles we can use and a triangle wave and then you know maybe some drum sounds that we can do really lo-fi stuff with so what they did like when you when you open up contra 3 in a, a program like spc tool which is like a rom hacking thing where you can actually see how they're using the eight channels and what instrument is loaded up at all times 
they're actually shuffling through all eight channels with all different instruments so that they can make it sound like there's more. So mm. if, if channel one has like sort of the, the lead in it, I swear that the programmer must have just have written a priority sequence or something. So, okay, this note when it first hits gets priority, so make sure it's on a channel and make mm -hmm. sure it gets heard. But then, like, lower priority things can have echoes later on, and so they would just find, like, uh, a channel that had a less priority or one that would have more priority would just take over. So when you look at it, like, all eight channels are all over the place. So when I were to rip these channels, like I said last time, rip all eight channels and open them up in Cubase, you see that each channel is just swapping all the time. Like, it's not like bass is channel one, guitars are channel two. It's like everything is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the reason they do that is because they want it to sound bigger so that they can have this priority. So they actually simulate having more than these eight channels by sort of doing what the Nintendo would do with their echo notes, where you only had two channels and you want to make an echo. You don't want to have both channels playing the same thing, so you have to take your one channel and hand write the echo somewhere in that channel. Yeah, so yeah. They're actually that, that makes a lot it, of sense. Yeah, they're doing it times eight, and so I, I gained tons of respect for uh, Super Nintendo composers, uh, especially in the early games. Uh, like Castlevania 3 as well, and Metroid, oh my gosh, Super Metroid. You know, most of the music in Super Metroid sounds all ambient because they just took, like, their brass sample, which would just be, like, if you just play it without a loop, it would sound like this, meh, and that's the, that's the instrument. And what they'll do yeah. is they'll loop it, but they'll play it, like, four octaves too low, so it's just, like, this droning ambient sound, and they repurposed all of their, their sounds so that they could make this soundtrack. So they were doing innovative things even though you think like oh it must just be a sample for a low drone it's like no this is the sample for the brass that they repurposed to sound low and so you you get the sense of these composers just toiling away like how are we supposed to make this amazing sounding music when we only have Meh, as our sound like come on <laughs> just a bunch of sheep bang at each yeah, other yeah yeah <laughs> but uh but just going back to that that theory you had as far as priorities with the super nintendo goes i i totally agree and i think that has a lot of validity because when we we did some uh back and forth via email with Iku Mizutani did a lot of uh, Super Nintendo and Nintendo composition and you know he said when he was managing sound for other composers you know he would have to determine which tracks got priority when sound effects right. came wow. out so I, you know I'm, I'm kind of combining these two theories together and mm -hmm. being like well you know maybe there is a priority script set up for the Super Nintendo so that you know when Bill Riser shoots his gun and there's an explosion you know right. what's the least important instrument that we can take out to substitute in that sound effect mm -hmm. and still make the song sound you know big without the like the whole lead instrument dropping yeah. off so it kind of makes sense that these effects might kind of change channels based on what what they want to substitute in or out when sound effects need to take the place of them so that, that's really cool yeah, and, and I mean even on the Super NES uh, like the emulators when you boot up like ZSNES you could turn the channels on and off which we've talked about before on the show um, what's interesting, which we've never really talked about, is depending on which game you play, the channels change all the time. Mm -hmm. So yep. if if you're turning off one channel uh, in one game, like Mega Man X, for example, you'll turn on or off a channel for like Super Castlevania 4 or something of the sort for a totally different game, and you'll be turning off something... Instead of you turning off drums, you're turning off like... Uh, uh, you know, like yeah, the, it's not a sign like MIDI, like channel right. 10 isn't always percussion, you know, right. that kind of stuff. could mm -hmm. be turning off a lead line or, or something. Or sometimes like you might turn off a lead line or you'll you'll solo out that one channel and right. you get the lead line, but then the lead line will stop and then some hi-hats will come in and right. it'll it'll change its its instrumentation it's within the, the same channel. So, yeah, yeah. yeah SNES is, is a very complicated beast, much more complicated than, I guess, you know, as, as your point before, much more complicated than most people might actually think. There's right. a lot of, um, you know, prioritizing and, and, uh, and just 
tomfoolery going on behind the scenes when you're listening to a cool track. Definite tomfoolery. Tomfoolery all around. They fool around so much. So one thing I want to just mention before we go off Super Nintendo stuff is um, while I was using this SPC tool to sort of investigate sounds, uh, I did do sound effects for uh, uh, a certain game after uh, Swap Heroes that still hasn't come out yet. But in investigating the sound effects for the Super Nintendo, I also thought that the sound effects were just samples, like, oh, we recorded a sword slash or something, and, and there's the sample for that. But it turns out mm-hmm. the Super Nintendo uses instruments like tones and stuff to generate their own sound effects, much like the Nintendo would have had to do. And that blew my mind because uh, hmm. sound effects were, were not samples. They were they were created with instruments, and a lot of times, like, they'll repurpose Zelda uh, 3, for example, when you open up a treasure chest, just the snare drum sound effect played twice, so... Ah, at different, right, that's yeah, cool. Different yeah, points. I didn't even think about that. So Very one thing, cool. One thing, it's just an anecdote that I would love to share with your uh, your listeners is Lavos, the Lavos sound in Chrono Trigger. So when you, yes. when you meet Lavos and he just makes that guttural sound... Yeah. What there's a there's another technique the Super Nintendo could do called pitch mod, and it's basically like FM modulation but without a sine wave. So it just sounds like noise, weird garbled noise. And so what they did was they took the choir sample from the game, and they used pitch mod on it, and it turns it into that garbled like. Yeah, uh, that's cool. Like think about like the composer is in his you know studio toiling away we need to make this sound and he uses the choir sample to do it that's that's yeah. so perfect because lavos i don't remember the storyline but i think he was like an evolution or some sort of something i can't remember but to, to yeah. use a human voice and run it through pitch mod is exactly like you can start to pick apart what they were thinking when they were when they were doing this stuff and that's just it makes me smile so much it's awesome. really funny that you bring that up because we were actually on our facebook group we have a very active facebook group and uh i posted uh asking everybody in the group like what are sound effects that you still remember from any video game that like you know are burnt into your memory and the one that I presented was the Lavos uh, growl or guttural thing that you were talking about so that's just like blowing my mind because that literally terrified me (laughs) as a teenager (laughs) playing that game so now that I know that it's just a chorus sound with a pitch modulation I'm just kind of like I don't know, it takes a little bit of the mystery out of it. <laughs> you ruined him. You, I'm sorry. you ruined Lavos for me. How dare you? We invite you on the show and you ruined Lavos for us. Oh, oh, I can't sorry. E- I, I just can't even with you, well, you Mr. Norinrad. We'll 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 have to, you know I, I think by the time you finish the next track you'll yes. you'll, you'll have forgiven Matt. Oh absolutely. Because what's coming up next? Our next track is Venture Kid on the iOS. Uh, this is level four volcano. So excited to play this track. Let's let's go into it. All right.
Welcome back. I hope you brought a change of underwear. That was Adventure <laughs> Kid on the iOS. That was level four volcano. Oh, so good. Yeah. I, I gotta say, so listening to the whole soundtrack is just phenomenal from start to finish, but this track in particular really grabbed me because it made me interpret the song in my own, like, voice, if you will, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So, I'm listening to this track, and I keep in mind, I still haven't played the game. I really just, I, I'm, I'm like a hardcore, like, console and handheld only kind of guy. I'm not a big fan of, like, Steam or any of that type of stuff. It's just not my bag. And I'm also not a big mobile gamer, but I really want this game to come out on <laughs> Steam or something. Just anything that's not mobile so I could actually play it. So I don't know the visual context of what's going on in the game, but I'm listening to this track and when that lead harmony kind of like rolls in and I'm like, okay, this is good. This is really groovy. Like I'm feeling this. It's like a rock groove, like rock dance funk. It's got so many different elements that are going on through it. Then, you know, you've got that kind of like groovy bass that's also in the background, but then you throw in that like octave change with the additional like uh, harmony that kind of pairs up with that and then it goes off on a tangent on its own and then you just have two layers of lead harmonies going all over the place and so after maybe about 15 loops of that just me rocking out to that in my car I'll I'll start singing when the melody comes in. So you've got the and then when it goes into that like it's like all over the place. So what I do when I'm driving and listening to the song is I'll throw in a third layer and I'll just riff on that on my own and just start vocalizing like and just like going absolutely oh, like balls to the wall into this just grooving people out people are looking in the rearview mirrors thinking I, this poor kid's having a seizure yeah. you know <laughs> yeah like I, I could totally picture just like people pulling up next to me at a stoplight and they're just looking over at me and they're like what's what's wrong with this kid like god so yeah, I, I don't know what it is about this particular song, but I just feel like you could stack infinite layers of the same thing on top of it, where it just goes with that that and then as soon as it splits and you've still got that main, you know, it's like up and down like that. You could stack just infinite layers on that part right there, and it would just be like a wall of noise. But somehow, I would just absolutely love it. You would just grow wings. I would grow wings and fly <laughs> off. I would turn into an 8-bit track. Just, that's what would happen. Wow. 8-bit track incarnate. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, so I, I gotta know, like, what, is that, like, something that you were trying to kind of get people into doing, like, kind of vocalizing their own harmonies with this? Or did you have, uh, are you, like, looking at me like, what a freak? <laughs> wow. No, even, well, even just you picking this track in particular, this was actually what I found was, like, one of my least favorite tracks on this soundtrack. And when I listen to my music after, there's, like, a, it degrades, like, the effect of how much I enjoy it degrades over time. And this was, like, one of the earliest ones where I'm like, yep, I'll skip that track. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, just the way you explained it now, like, I remember when I was making this track, and the, the case that I've, I've kind of been typecast, where I, I make these games that have a forest level, a desert level, an mm -hmm. ice level, like, I, I just always <laughs> right. have to do this. 
But a volcano was one that, like, I don't even know what a volcano should sound like. I, I have no <laughs> reference for that. So with this song, I kind of just wrote something. I didn't I didn't write with a, a theme in mind. So it, it probably just spilled out kind of how I would naturally want to write a song, which I've, I've learned to curb my natural melody writing instinct just because I get so many rejected tracks when I go off course. Like, I, I need the developers okay. to tell me exactly what they want so that I can get it right so yeah mm-hmm. this track must have i don't i don't know what happened with this track but i i didn't have anything in mind with it i just wanted to write a lead so that intro part is the build-up and it, it might build up too long in my opinion which is maybe why i don't like it for a 40 second track it's funny that i'm like it builds up for too long um right right it, it just sort of busts <laughs> into that solo and so the track is basically just the first part and then the solo and that's the whole loop right so i, I think i just wanted a solo and i i don't know i i didn't even think about it this is very... I'm going to have to ponder this. You mentioned a volcano. It's a perfect analogy for that because, you, you know, when a volcano explodes, the lava's going everywhere. It's going in different places, different locations. It's going down the mountain. And it's kind of spreading out. And that's kind of what I feel this track wow. is doing is it's like spreading out and moving uh, with... Just spurting its musical lava yes, everywhere. Yes, yes. <laughs> spurting that hot... <laughs> warm stuff yep, keep going. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you gave exactly. me a new appreciation for this track, actually. This is, uh, that's, I'm gonna have to think back on this big time. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, this actually leads us right into a great question from one of our fans, Chris Murray. He asks, as far as Adventure Kids soundtrack goes, which track for this game was your, is your favorite, and how long did it take you to write the whole soundtrack? This soundtrack, I think, took me, like, three months or so to write. I wasn't doing music as my full-time gig at that point, so it was more of a part-time thing for me, so I wasn't, like, toiling away for three months straight. But uh, Nintendo music is definitely harder to make than... Like, someone could come up to me and, and want an epic, a triple-A orchestral score. It would take me no time at all to write that. Whereas Nintendo music takes, like, exponentially more time, because every time you write a note that has an echo somewhere else in that channel, Anytime you change that note, then you also have to change the echo. So there's like multiple more levels of, of difficulty. Not to mention, you can't use effects. You can't use reverb or delay or chorus. Like you have to, if you want chorus, you have to take two notes and detune them slightly. So yeah, yeah this was a, a very long soundtrack to make because coming off of Slayin', they wanted Nintendo music. And, and at this point, I actually, damn you, Vert. Here's what happened during <laughs> during Retro City Rampage. I got to actually see some of his mod files for his FX3 album that he came out with, and um, oh, I love that yeah, album. It's crazy, and and that yeah. he was still using Modplug for that, and that's where I realized some techniques that like I was doing really sloppy work when it came to Anomaly. Um, mm-hmm. What I did for my sample for for almost all of Anomaly was. I opened up an NSF file, and I think it was just Cosmic Wars was the the game I opened up. It's just a Konami game. Opened up one of their songs and tried to find the longest sustaining note I could, and then just chopped it out and made a sample of that. Because I'm like, I don't know, I don't know how to get it to sound as warm as the Nintendo sounds. Because if you just use a raw square wave, it sounds a little tinny and, and it's harsh on the ears. So I opened up that, made my own sample, and almost all of the power chords you hear in Anomaly are, are written with one sample, and and it was came from like an actual NSF. So when I opened up Vert's file, hmm. he had a ton of instruments he'd made, like multiple octaves, and and he'd organized it all really well. And that's when I realized I've been like doing myself a disservice by using one sample whereas I could write multiple samples per octave and it would sound warmer and warmer and warmer and the way ah. I, I could do that is open up Famitracker and write and like just make a, a song that is an octave of each note so I could have a long sustaining octave or every note could be recorded basically to its own sample so I made my own sample library 
from Famitracker so that I could open it up in ModPlug and write my own music that way. And it's the most ridiculous way to go around uh, working in Famitracker, but I, I, I just didn't like using Famitracker, so I, I had to do this. So working on Slayin', I did a bit of that, and then when it came to VentureKid, I, was, I knew more and I made a huge sample library for VentureKid that I could try and simulate Capcom sounds a little better and, and things like that. So yeah, making it took a very long time from writing it and uh, like constructing it as well. Cool. Well, I, I did notice, like we were talking about uh, before we even started recording, but I did notice a lot of samples that did sound very similar to like the Ninja Turtles 3 soundtrack. So did you actually take the NSF from, from that soundtrack and, and rip samples from that game, or did you create those by hand? What I did was um, I opened up NSF files in like a hacked version of Famitracker called NSF Import, and it mm -hmm. lets you open up NSF files in Famitracker. It's mind-boggling. So you can actually uh, see how all the NES music was made. So if you're like, that's a great effect, I want to sound like that, you see exactly how they did. And that's why I knew that Capcom and Mega Man, to, to get some of the texture that they wanted, they would have the note hit and then cut the note immediately and then have it come back. So okay. I would use that technique a lot in this game. And so I, I'm using basically the core sample library for the NES, so each, each duty cycle for the square waves. Turtles 3, they did that a lot. Like, almost every note has a different duty cycle at the start and then a different duty cycle to sustain. And so I would make samples for that as well. So the 12% the duty cycle going to the 25% duty cycle and on and on. So I made the sample libraries for each different sort of multi-duty cycle samples you could get and then looked at how they made the sounds using NSF import. And then so I would use their sounds with their techniques. So you're, you're practically almost making like an NES sound emulator within OpenMPT, like just really kind of taking all of those function calls and like importing them almost into that's that's really into like a tracker format that's that's really cool that's really in depth yeah and the thing is the reason why i didn't like using famitracker for the longest time is because it had this default thing where if you double click anywhere on it it selects the whole column or it selects the whole uh bit that you're editing on and with modplug the way that i edit i use mouse in one hand keyboard in the left hand and so if I want to go down a couple columns, I'll just lower my mouse down a couple columns, click once, and then the whole thing shifts down. So if I click again, it'll shift me down again by that amount. So I'll go click, click, okay. click, 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 click to go all the way down. And so when I'm writing a Famitracker, I'm like, click, click, and then everything would get highlighted. And I'd be like, I don't know what's happening. And it took me a long time to realize, like, oh, it's just double click that's happening. And so I'd actually sent the developer of Famitracker, like, a... A feature request like can you please have like a disabled double click and that would that was only within like the last two years that that came out oh wow so for the longest time the reason why i wasn't using famitracker is mainly because of that double click and i just didn't realize it that's funny so this was what i had to do as a result was all of this work just to keep working in modplug <laughs> so so have you been working in famitracker then recently i haven't had an excuse to but if if there were ever another nes soundtrack that i needed to work on i would definitely do it in famitracker at this point that's cool. That would, that would be awesome to actually hear your music coming out of a real NES. That would he, be so cool. Yeah. He needs inspiration. We need to uh, immediately come out with a game. <laughs> he, he could do uh, Pixel Tunes Radio, the game. The game. The NES game. The Adventures of Mike the and Ed. Soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just be a lot of complaining and... and <laughs> All right. You start the Kickstarter and we'll, yeah. we'll get it going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Be a lot of uh, euphemisms, a lot of... Uh, in jokes. Well, yeah, here, here's in jokes. the funny thing with Nintendo music too. Uh, the real conundrum there is that most Nintendo projects aren't. They don't pay a lot because it's usually a really sort of. It's usually a really quirky, like smaller project. Retro City Rampage is basically the biggest NES sort of project that I think has ever been made in the in the modern day. Like, because it is actually NES. He programmed it to be. 
8-bit. The thing is, usually it takes me an exponential amount of time longer to make NES music with an exponentially lower amount of money. So oh, it's just not financially sound. Yeah, it's, then. It's, right. it's not financially sound to make Nintendo music the way I do because it, it takes me too long to make it. So that's that's where we're at right now. Like that's why I haven't made NES music in a while because it takes a long time to make and it's very emotionally taxing. Like when a track gets rejected, an NES track, that's the most crushed I'll ever feel. Like if a, if another track gets rejected uh, or you know just they don't want it or they don't like it. Uh, I can I can work with that like okay change the instruments blah 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 but with Nintendo it's like you just didn't like the notes it's like that's it's so much harder to like wrap your head around <laughs> so yeah it's a very frustrating thing to work with as a job but it's the funnest thing to work with as a hobby so with Nintendo music it needs to be your thumbprint like the your musical instinct needs to be what shows there so if there were ever a Nintendo project that I worked on where they're like hey we're just gonna commission you to do your interpretation of this and like no rejected tracks that'd be the only way I could I could really do it from an emotional standpoint again it's very it's a very love-hate thing to do as a job but hobbies definitely the, the fun thing to do Alright, so we need to figure out a way to pay him for this soundtrack. Well, that's where the Kickstarter thing came in. Well, I was going to suggest... It would just be just... one of those goals where if like, we meet $2 million, then it'll make it worth his while. Right. Well, I was just going to suggest we could pay him in Taco Bell. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> food food just... budget will well, get covered. Yep, that makes sense. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Perfect. Excellent. Alright, let's move on to our next track. This one's Matt's pick. It is Twisted Metal. The 1995 release on the PlayStation 1. This track is a rooftop battle, and it's by Chuck E. Myers, Tom Hopkins, and Lance Lenhart.
And we're back. That was Rooftop Battle from Twisted Metal. Came out on the PlayStation in 1995. Composed by Chuck E. Myers, Tom Hopkins, and Lance Lenhart. I feel like this is like the evolution of the Aliens Lair theme in terms of video game music. You know, you've got that very kind of cinematic, doesn't really follow a solid tempo. I, I get shades of action cinema mixed with like some Batman the Animated Series okay. in, the, in the end where it's building up towards that climax. It's like dun 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 very staccato very cool stuff and it's got like world instruments in there and guitar and like they really went all out for this especially for like 95 where CD audio was mm-hmm. just kind of started yeah. uh, becoming a, a a mainstream thing you know you were still listening to like crappy MIDI synths uh, that they you know slapped into a CD and just called it better than chiptune you know right right so Matt what was your what was your reasoning for picking this particular track it's funny with this game it's a very nostalgic time to remember when 3D games started coming out and how they could almost do no wrong because you come from this with Nintendo games and Super Nintendo games, I always thought they were kind of like cartoons and you were playing a cartoon and I pictured it like that because they were always cartoony looking. When 3D mm-hmm. games or, or even when Mortal Kombat came out, you started seeing things like, oh, this is like real life now. This isn't even a cartoon. And so when you start getting 3D and like real modeled cars and physics and sound effects, like this is sort of the time where games started getting real looking and real sounding. And it's like really rudimentary now. But at the time, it's like I was trying to remember how amazing it was at that time and uh, Twisted Metal was a game I remember reading about in GamePro and stuff and and the concept of the game where you can drive anywhere in a 3D world and try and like kill your other opponents and stuff like that concept to me was mind-boggling and I actually bought Twisted Metal before I owned a PlayStation because I (laughs) I had a friend that had a PlayStation and I could bring it over to his house it's funny I should have just left it at his house but I would always bring it over to his house so that we could (laughs) play it but uh, yeah Twisted Metal was like a very seminal game for me and in terms of music as well this was one of the earliest games i can remember actually sitting cross-legged on the floor and listening to the sound test screen <laughs> and uh and being like that that is amazing like this, like it's weird because i had an older brother i had older siblings and when you're the youngest sibling like it, it, your siblings will show you music to sort of try and get you into it and there's nothing they could do to get me to like the music they liked like it, i just like your parents too like i don't want to listen to the music you're liking. I can't. Yeah, it's just, yeah. I, I have this natural rejection to it. So when I was sitting cross-legged, I, it was like the first time I had to accept to myself, like, I actually really like this. And uh, there was a lot of tracks on this soundtrack in particular that I, I would have picked for this show. I didn't want to pick the one that I did listen to the most, because uh, I was in eighth grade when this game came out, or seventh grade, eighth grade, right around that time. And I remember coming home from school and just loading it up on the TV and listening to the song and, and sitting in, on the floor cross-legged, literally listening to the, the soundtrack for this game. One of the songs from the first level, I can't remember the name of it. It's a really rockin' song that has a lot of metal influence. Like, there's a lot of guitar in it. Insane <laughs> solo. But it also has harmonica in it. So I'm like, well, I don't want to really like put a harmonica <laughs> out here. But So I picked this track because this was another track where this is the rooftop level of the game. And, and this is the, like, at the time, it was probably the biggest arena that I'd ever seen. Uh, exist in a game because you see these rooftops and you can zoom way out if you want and you can just see how big the playing field is and you just get the sense that things are going down like this is a very last boss kind of song and this is just it's an epic track 
top to bottom. <laughs> Definitely. So, so I got to ask, all those times where you had that CD sitting at your house, you didn't have a PlayStation, but you love the music. Did you ever realize that you could throw that CD in an actual CD player and listen to the music that way? Here's the thing. I I didn't even have a CD player at the time. Oh, like man. That's how little I liked music at the time. <laughs> My first exposure to music was me literally holding up a pair of headphones plugged into the microphone jack of a Ghetto Blaster because that's you can still use it as a microphone for some mm-hmm. insane reason. Yeah. Holding those up to the speaker of my TV and recording the Mega Man 3 soundtrack. Like, that was the first thing I'd ever listened to on my own. That's funny. Bootleg tape of Mega Man 3 music. So I was like out. I wasn't even listening to music at all, basically until this game came out. And so when when I finally got my own PlayStation, like that's when that's what I would do is I would listen to it on the floor, <laughs> as if that was my my way of listening to music. That's really I'm playing cool. it from the PlayStation. Huh. As as far as your gaming history goes, like what was your first console? Was it the was it the PlayStation or did you have like a Nintendo or a Genesis earlier on? Yeah, it started with Atari, but I was a little too young to actually like or enjoy the Atari. But the Nintendo, uh, basically from first grade to seventh grade, or sorry, first grade to like third grade, I think. Uh, it was all Nintendo all the time, and then it went Sega Genesis, and then uh, Super Nintendo way late in that cycle, then PlayStation, then from then on it was PlayStation 2, and everything PlayStation basically at that point. Cool. Mm. So, so when you were a kid, did you did any of those video game soundtracks kind of uh, stick out to you that, that you felt like kind of influenced you later on, or were you just kind of like cared more about the gameplay than the music at that point. Uh, the It was sort of half and half. I, I remember with Mega Man 2, my brother and I used to write our own lyrics to the songs and sing it. Because there's this part in there's this part in Bubble Man where it's like, duh, 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 and then, uh, I can't remember. There was this one part where we would write our own lyrics, and uh, the the lyrics that I had were, and go blad That's what I would say. Like, oh, it's not yeah. Even a, it's, it doesn't make sense. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like music little, was something. little drum hit. Yeah. So music was always something I paid attention to, but it wasn't really until uh, like the seventh grade that I started realizing music was a very important part of video games. It started with sound test screens, you know, like you, you, right. you, you if you own a game, you kind of experience every aspect of it and you'll you'll eventually find yourself in the sound test screen, like listening to the music or the sound effects. And, and at a certain point, uh, doing some homework in grade, I'm jumping ahead of myself a bit here, but... I would do the same thing with uh, certain Sega Genesis games, like just listen to those sound test screens as if they were the music I'd be listening to normally. I distinctly remember my brother making fun of me for doing that. Uh, we all, I think cool. we all yeah. We've all that. been there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't until uh, roughly this PlayStation time, though, that I was I was realizing that music was basically one of the main things I, I enjoyed about the games. Like they added everything to the experience. So listening to this track, I honestly thought that it was a Tommy Tallarico track because you've got those wailing guitars on top mm. of those like really bombastic, you know, rising like ascending melodies mm. and, you know, really reminded me of something from like the Terminator Sega CD soundtrack. Uh, yeah. But I was I was pretty impressed by this one. The composers, the there's three composers labeled to this, uh, one of which is Tom Hopkins, which he's only credited for slam dunk typing in 97 uh, as a production Slam assistant. dunk typing? Yeah, slam dunk typing. Sounds boring. I, I know, yeah. So, I don't know if this guy Maybe he was, was on production or something I'm like that. I'm thinking production, yeah. And then Chuck E. Myers, who has been working since 95 on Warhawk, and then he jumped on the Twisted Metal, okay. uh, Twisted uh. Metal 2, uh, Looney Tunes Racing, Rogue Trip, Frogger Beyond. I mean, he's done a bunch of so stuff. So Sony in-house stuff. Yeah, yeah. His latest uh, game was with uh, Disney Infinity, the 3.0 edition starter pack, and of course, Toy Box. 
2.0 and just Disney Infinity in general. Okay. So he was kind of uh, the main composer and music score guy behind that. And then uh, Lance Lenhart, the third composer, Warhawk, Twisted Metal, Jet Moto, Twisted Metal 2. So he kind of worked with... 99. Uh, we, yeah, with him. Jet Moto 2, his final game was Triple Play 99, and that was music written by him for uh, the 1998 release for that. So Cool. Yeah. I always wondered what else these guys did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's especially like Disney Infinity, because that... Th- those games contain like the entirety of the Disney properties, like oh, all yeah. in one game. Absolutely. So I'm sure he was probably managing music from all sorts of those IPs and probably composing music that kind of fit in between those. So yeah, that's that was probably a really difficult and, and huge job. So yeah. good to know that he's still out there doing good stuff. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. All right, so what do we say we move on to our next one? Yeah, so our next track is Slayin', and this is Ed's pick. The track is in-game theme. Let's go ahead and listen to it.
And we're back. That was in-game theme from Slayin, composed by our special guest today, Matt Creamer, a.k.a. Norin Rad. It's another NES-style tune. Yo, that uh, track was Slayin'. It was Slayin'. <laughs> I feel like, you know, when the, when, when the guys from Dragon Force are finally, like, in their 90s and they can't play so fast anymore, yeah. they play everything halftime, right. this will be that track. It's got that level okay. of, like, you know, complexity and progginess going yes. on. Like, halftime Dragon Force, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Dragon Farce. Dragon Farce. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. 8-bit Dragon Force. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it's definitely, like, I love, especially towards the end with that da-na, that's totally like as you put it earlier like NWOBHM like classic uh, not quite power metal but still in that like Iron Maiden vein mm-hmm. so yeah. you, Iku Mizutani you, style stuff yeah you know? definitely yeah. yeah I mean like simplistic melodies that's uh, when we talked to Iku Mizutani that was a lot of what he said is you want to make make sure that you focus on making the melodies memorable and uh, especially because they're going to loop over and over right, again as you're playing right. the game so yeah. would you say that that's the case Matt as far as like a, the, the trick to composing is making something like sound very memorable and, and simple but like complex at the same time yeah, that's that's kind of the name of the game with Nintendo music. You can't really do anything but that. Like, there's there's not really a way to do a nice ambient Nintendo song without putting a ton of like fallen style like arpeggios in there and stuff, which is really hard to do with Modplug. So fortunately, it's it's almost impossible to not write something that's very melodic or or melody based. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it just it comes down to did I write the melody that the developer wanted for this game? So. When we were when we were actually writing music for this game, they uh, I always try and get descriptive words from the developer and be like, give me a bunch of examples of games that have that descriptive word to you. So one of the words they had was heroic, and and this is where I, I learned because this is a German developer, so uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure English is not their first language, but we did it all through. Uh, Skype and correspondence and stuff. Mm-hmm. So when they said they wanted a heroic game, the first thing I thought of was like, oh, it should sound like the Contra Boss theme. That's the most heroic song <laughs> that I know of. That's yeah. heroic incarnate. So when I wrote a song like that for them, they immediately said like, no, this isn't uh, this isn't exactly what we were looking for. So I had to be more savvy with how I'd be asking them, okay, send me some stuff that you find heroic, and that's how we kind of arrived at the sound. I can't remember what they sent for this one, but yeah, it just kind of it just kind of ended up based on their feedback. This is this is what sort of fell out of me. Regarding music actually, and this brings me to kind of like questions that uh, other people ask, but also I was going to ask as well. Uh, what type of music, uh, you know, based on this like non-video game music related inspires you to to create music? Movie soundtracks, definitely something that, that uh, I analyze a lot. I try and bring over as much as I can from that. But yeah, other than that, it's, um, man, it's, it's asking such a ridiculous... Th- I listen to the stupidest music. Like, I, I can't be satisfied with just listening to a good song. I have to have extra layers to why I appreciate the song. Like, well, this is a good song because it was written in 1984, which was uh, the the first year that someone could have commercially got, like, FM sounds. But it was also from uh, a non-English-speaking country, so they didn't have all this <laughs> stuff. Like, I have all these stupid layers to it. So, I don't know. The, the thing with me is like discovering music so if, if I discover something that I, I think is untouched or not untouched but if I discover something that I don't think has influenced anything that I'm already sort of aware of then I want to incorporate it immediately so I'm always trying to find like new influences so it, it doesn't really matter what it sounds like it's just like how if like adding tools to the toolkit I guess so I'll, mm-hmm. I'll listen to absolutely everything for that right 
Yeah, cool. I, I kind of know how that is because I mean, like, my musical palette kind of jumps all over the place. I mean, one minute I'll be listening to no joke. I have Spice Girls on my phone <laughs> uh, to to something <laughs> as extreme as like you know Cannibal Corpse. Right. So like, I, yeah, I you just, gotta keep an open mind about that. Yeah, like I'm all over the place as well. So I kind of I feel you on that. This game is uh, it's mobile only as well. And it's just—it's a very simple kind of one level, one horizontal plane, side-scroller, waves of enemies come at you, and you basically have to beat them all. It's basically how many enemies you slay. Okay. You, you have three buttons on the screen. You've got left and right and action. So you can move left, move right, and shoot. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you get a couple different characters you can play as, and you, they have different attacks. That's basically the only thing that really differentiates one character from another. So you might have a character that kind of like, like the archer will like run his bow across the ground and then mm-hmm. shoot an arrow up like you know, like an axe motion from like right. Castlevania or something. Or you'll have, you know, somebody that just slices a sword or somebody that might shoot a projectile straight. So, you know, the game itself is very, very simple. And there's only one in-game track, which is this track that we just listened to. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what your background looks like, regardless of what stage you're in, you know, you're going to be hearing this track just kind of punctuated with, like, the boss music track. So it's... Uh, I, I like the fact that this particular track is so varied and so dynamic in places because you don't really get tired of listening. It doesn't feel like a loop that just goes over and over again. Mm -hmm. Once you've heard it the third time, you're still kind of picking new things out of it that makes it sound new and fresh. So, you know, I I played the game for probably about 20 minutes and I'm, you know, listening to the song over and over again and I never felt like I wanted a different song to play. So, Mm -hmm. nice job on that, Matt. You did did good. Oh, thank you. That was actually exactly what the developer was asking for, too. Um, Since they only wanted one in-game song, they didn't want, like, here's the forest level, here's the cave level. Mm. Uh, They just wanted that one song and they wanted it to be like heroic and adventurous and they wanted it to be long. That was the the big thing. Like, they, (laughs) they needed it to be long. And it's funny, like, I could write you a Nintendo song that's 30 seconds long in one sitting, no problem. Start to finish and it would be ready to rock. But every five seconds you want to add to it after that adds hours upon hours upon hours to the to the track. And the longer it gets, the longer it takes to add stuff. And so right. with this track, it took so long to write because when you're dealing with these uh, fundamental tones and the way that these melodies are, like you start picturing your song in terms of patterns. Like, well, I've already done that pattern, so I can't do it again. So like, what's yeah. another variation I can do? So by the by the end of this song, it's it's like I'm tapped. I've, I've tapped out every variation I could come up with. And I, I never want the song to sound boring, which is which is something I do anyways. But it's one of the reasons why I don't usually write really long chiptunes. But this in this case, they wanted a very long song and they did an update. So that's where in-game theme two came out. OK. Um, and so that's another super long track. And, and it was funny when they contacted me for that one. They're like, yes. Yeah, so uh, do you want to make us another uh, two and a half minute long chip tune? Like, <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> but yeah, it worked out. The, I'm, I'm glad that that it has that effect because, yeah, it would have got really boring if it was just the 30 second loop or a minute loop that just plays over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that was that Slayin' 2 even Slayin'er? The, the, the updated one? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I do actually like that track better because in the timeline of things, I actually wrote in-game theme 2 after Venture Kid came out. So I used the Venture Kid template on in-game uh, theme two. Oh, cool. Okay. So I find that the Venture Kid template was just better at sounding smooth. Like I find the slaying, it's a little uh, in your face. It's uh, it's very. Uh, it's very bass heavy. Yeah, slaying. That's, that's one of my right. problems. I think I have actually a hearing problem where I, I don't. I, I think I hear bass differently than I should. Like I have tinnitus, so it's like I always hear ringing anyways. Like I think. I just, I can't get bass right, because when I compare it to Vert's stuff or something, I always think, why does his bass sound so controlled and so nice, 
and mine just sounds booming all the time, so I'm sure there's just some <laughs> problem I have with it. The, the unfortunate thing is, too, is because a lot of these games are mobile games, you know, if you're not listening to them in headphones, you're hearing them out of these tinny Android or iOS speakers, <laughs> and you're not getting that bass anyway, yeah. so, you know, I think maybe sometimes pumping up the bass is a little bit better, because that helps it come through on those little monorail speakers a lot more yeah, anyways. Yeah, that's true, so. that's true. Yeah, it's funny for Slayin' actually, to mix it, I actually use this thing called an impulse response, which is where uh, you can simulate uh, a reverb of an actual space. So you could simulate huh. the reverb of a, a very specific uh, church or uh, even a piece of gear. It's, it's, it's the way they like, they have like a snap, a sound that's just basically a, a snapping that goes through a room and then they somehow take the reverberance of that snap and they can modulate a sound based on that so it sounds like it's in that room. It's called impulse response technology or, or convolution reverb. And so what I would do is I would use uh, an impulse response of an actual iPod or, or sorry, uh, iPhone, so that I could listen to the song after uh, what it would sound like on those speakers. And so I was trying to actually mix it correctly, but I'm sure I haggered it somewhere along the lines. But the, the in-game <laughs> version, like at least I was trying. Like I, I want, like Nintendo tones, they already sound very like bold and they're in your face. So I, like I was trying to make it so I don't want it to like break these speakers or anything. All part of the struggle. Yep, I, I've only listened to the game uh, in headphones, so I'll have to go listen to it in regular speakers, like regular iPad speakers, and report back. <laughs> well, let's jump into our next track. This is Matt's pick. This is War Song from the 1991 Genesis release, and the track is called Friendly Fight, also known as Player Phase 1. This track specifically was composed by Hiroshi Fujioka, uh, but the rest of the tracks were composed by Noriyuki Iwadare and Isayo Mizuguchi. Yep, this was also called uh, Langrisser in Japan. Right. Welcome back. That was War Song, the 1991 Genesis track. The track was called Friendly Fight Player Phase 1, and it's by Hiroshi Fujioka. The rest of the soundtrack is by Noriyuki Iwadare and Isayo Mizuguchi. 
This is a great track. I, I was commenting while we were listening. There's so many different elements from so many other composers that I kind of heard through this track. Like, specifically, there's like a hand clap motion, which is like one hand clap, <laughs> and then it kind of rolls into the next part. Oh, that sound is kind of soloed out. And, and like now, all I can, whenever I hear that, all I can hear is like Motoi Sakuraba. Yeah. Um, and then you also had- Like uh, the Eliento like, and Ernest Evans soundtracks. Yeah, Ernest Evans, yeah, 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 exactly. And then you also kind of heard a little bit of like Matt Furnish, Sean Hollingworth in there with those like- that little um, disco segment with the little yeah. arpeggios in the background right, felt right. very that, Matt Furnace. Well, that, and then I was also going to say with the with the drums later on when you hear like the like the, yep. with the drumming, it's uh, it, it's almost like a xylophone in a way. It was it's pretty crazy, but Neil Pert style, yeah, yeah, all the way around the 180 degree circle. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> so yeah, I gotta ask. Like I've never even heard of this game, so I'm curious. Like where where did you pull this from? This was one I, I had in my childhood. Uh, one of my brother's older friends had this game and he used to lend it to us and this is when I was in third grade I'm only like eight years old and this is a strategy game sort of like Shining Force if you guys know mm -hmm. that one mm -hmm. it's yep. like Shining Force only in this game if your characters die they stay dead for the rest of the game <laughs> very similar to Fire Emblem yeah exactly so this was a game that I just played as a kid and didn't know how to play it and just like brute forced my way through it and uh, the music <laughs> definitely helped like this is this is one of those games that the soundtrack is just really easy. It's easy to keep playing the game because the music is, is so rocking. Yes. When you guys hear the simulation of the guitar in the song, it's done with FM. Like, I love that. Yeah. They clearly wanted to have, like, sort of the digga digga do it, like a little guitar riff there, but it's with FM. And there's a little cowbell in the background with FM. Like, they, they just really <laughs> wanted to go for this sort of band atmosphere with this. And, like, there's key solos, like. Yeah, yeah. They really did, like, this whole sort of fusion rock sound with the uh, FM. It's, it's pretty brilliant. Yeah, and a lot of these composers also came from composing for games on like the PC-88, PC-98, Sharp X68000. They all were FM uh, sound-based uh, computer systems in Japan. So when they started working on the Mega Drive and Genesis, they'd already had lots of experience with both less capable and more capable FM chips than the YM2612 and the Genesis. So that kind of shows off why this, this song is so good because they were, they were used to working with limitations, but they were also used to working with chips that allowed them to use more instruments and more operators per instrument and sample drums that were kind of like natively baked into the chip. And so they kind of brought all of that experience and technique you know, into this game, which is why, you know, for a game that was released, you know, as early as 1991, you get this really solid sounding uh, FM soundtrack that, you know, you really didn't hear much until like probably 93, 94, um, when people started getting really more experience with composing for the Mega Drive. So yeah, no, kind of ahead true. of its time a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was also Hiroshi Fujioka's first game for composing. So he did War Song, and then he followed it up with Star Odyssey in 91, Headbuster in 91. Uh, kind of jumped around. He did Lingrisier 3, which obviously War Song, Lingrisier 3, since War Song is Lingrisier. And then his last game was 2006, Atelier Iris 3, Grand Phantasm, which he was labeled as coordinator. So probably just like a... Sound manager. Yeah, yeah sound yeah, production sound and whatnot. And then we've talked about Noriyuki Iridare like tons of times, so mm -hmm. we're not really going to get into... The Lunar series is his bread Lunar, and butter. And yeah, so... And then Isayo Mizuguchi also worked on the Langrisier series, uh, 
kind of bounced all over the place, but uh, has done a lot of stuff. Also worked on Sylphid as well, which we've talked about. Uh, Steel Empire, who's a music comp composer on that. Lane Grissier too, Lord Monarch. Choaniki, like some of the Choaniki oh, games. Oh yeah, those are great. Oh, right. uh, <laughs> and then uh, his last game that he worked on was Lunar S- Silver Star Hom- Harmony, where he was labeled as a sound producer. So, okay. you know, he, he's worked very tightly with uh, Noriyuki. Iwadari. Iwadari, yeah. right, right, right. Very cool. Yeah. So, Matt, is this one of the soundtracks that influenced some of your FM compositions? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, there's a track on Treasure Buster. I think it's the Hall of Death. It's the last level in the game. Mm-hmm. That track, I actually used... This This track that we just played is one of the ones where I ripped every channel to its own WAV file and opened it up in Cubase to see exactly how they made the song sound the way it did. And so, like, how they get their guitar sound, I, I don't know. Is it is it one instrument or is it are they using two channels? You know, things like that. So I, I found out exactly their method for creating this sound. So, like, with FM, to, to get a patch, like, sort of a... If you're going to get, like, a, a preset sound for an FM bass or something, you can make it sound really similar to the FM bass that the actual Genesis had because there's ways like the, the ROM hacking communities found ways to like sort of extract the information from the actual operator register so you can just it's just values like you know attack value this re, uh, release value this blah 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 yeah. for all the different operators and you can just toss it into whatever FM VST you're using so you can get a really accurate sounding you know simulation of what they were doing so I was using the same sounds that they were using as well that's cool uh, okay. for that holodeath track so speaking of Treasure Buster, why don't we just jump right into it? This is stage one. This is Slam Dancer, which is such a great name for a track. But <laughs> let's uh, let's go ahead and Slam Dance a little. Let's get it. Yeah. All right, we're back. That was Stage 1 Slam Dancer from 
the game Treasure Buster, released on iOS, composed by the man of the day, Norn Rad, Matt Creamer. So FM style on this one. So we've now hit like all three of the major uh, <laughs> chiptune style consoles, I guess, minus the Game Boy, which is also pretty popular. But mm -hmm. so this one, I think I, I did get a chance to watch your YouTube video on your making of this soundtrack, Matt, which was awesome. It was so informative. Oh, cool. Um, nice, nice close ups on each track and literally like how you made almost every individual sound. I really enjoyed it. The one thing that stuck out to me, though, that kind of differed this soundtrack from like your your Super Nintendo or your NES style soundtracks is that you did end up using more tracks than just a standard six that the uh, YM2612, right? Mm -hmm, so you went a little mm -hmm. beyond what the comp, the, not that that's a bad thing at all. I mean, mm -hmm. the composition is absolutely amazing. So uh, aside from like Warsong, what other games or uh, FM music inspired you to, to make this soundtrack? Oh, FM in general, all FM, like, <laughs> It, it was something I didn't realize until sort of halfway through my Nintendo chiptune career, but I like FM better. FM is my favorite sound. I, uh, when you think about the 80s, because I'm, I'm big about the 80s, like, and it's not just like, oh, 80s everything, 80s clothes, blah, blah, blah. The 80s were a time where analog and digital crossed over. And right. there was mm -hmm. like, nine, and, and a lot of that is the FM. FM is where digital synthesizers became like commercially available. Yeah, yeah there's just something about the FM sound that before FM, no one had heard FM before, and so this is like a, an example of an instrument that was created in modern time that it's uh, it's unique to modern time. Like, it's not like a piano or a violin or like some variation on those. Like, it's it's one frequency modulating another one in a melodic capacity. Like, that's that's like, that's the future. That's that's future of music. And so <laughs> I, I really just love the sound of FM. It's just got this cold, it can, it can sound super cold or it can sound super warm, but it's always like got this punchy sort of iconic sound and, and yeah anything to do with fm like you, you give me i don't know if you guys had followed but i do this summer of fm hashtag where i basically just post a bunch of songs from the 80s that have fm in them it's mostly just fm bass but yeah you know, an example would be danger zone has fm bass uh aha's take on me fm bass like and so there's a lot of tracks that you just you don't recognize or you don't realize that they're just bathed in fm stuff from the 80s and uh, the more you break it down like it, it really was the sound of the 80s and it really was the sound of like sort of digital and analog sort of changing hands. But yeah, anything, all FM, I'm, I'm on board. Like I was telling that before we started, this is probably my favorite soundtrack of his. I mean, I'm, I myself, I'm total FM too. Yeah, like yeah. when I started, when I started getting into um, like sharing VGM on the web and like the baby days of <laughs> Pixel Tunes Radio, right. um, the baby days, I, I was like <laughs> Muppet Babies, yeah, but Pixel Tunes you know, Radio. When we were kind of like standing on the table to reach the microphone because we were so short. <laughs> when your world looks kind of. <laughs> I was I was very much a Super Nintendo guy. I, yeah. I thought Super Nintendo was the way to go because of the samples and change you know the way it sounds and blah blah blah. And the more FM I listened to, the more I got into it, the more I realized I really really like. It. And I still enjoy the Super Nintendo stuff, and I still enjoy the sample-based stuff, but I feel like the best of FM is just so much better than the best of SNES. And so, yeah, I'm right I'm right with you there, Matt. I can, I really appreciate a good FM song so much. And especially, you know, like, like you were talking about, stuff mm -hmm. that's like, you know, vocal pop that came out in the 80s, but still uses that FM bass. It just adds yeah. so much more warmth and depth to that music. I, I will say I have a stronger appreciation more than ever, you know, now, what, 93 episodes into Pixel Tunes Radio <laughs> for FM synth. 
than I ever did. I mean, I also didn't really own a Genesis until, you know, I was in college. You were mostly just picking straight up NES. Yeah, I was an NES. I was a Nintendo fanboy through and through, so NES and Super NES was like my bread and butter. So now I wouldn't say that I prefer Genesis to Super NES. I don't think of it like that, in all honesty, in terms of music. It's like, okay to be wrong. Uh, it's okay <laughs> to be wrong. Um, but I would say that uh, the NES is like king for me. Like, nonstop, I could listen to NES music all day if it's if it's good. And it's got, you know, really, like, awesome layers, like what Matt's putting into, like, Venture Kid and all right, that type right. of stuff. But when you play a track like this, Treasure Buster, it really just makes me want to dance. Like, it's just really <laughs> awesome FM synth. Yeah, yeah. And it really does bring me back, just like Matt said, to those, those times of the 80s. And you really perfectly described this track in terms of pairing it with the 80s. I couldn't have said yeah. it any better myself. <laughs> so Matt, now that now that we've heard all of the different styles that you've pretty much composed in as, as far as like emulating console music goes, which is, which is your preferred style to compose in? Do you like the SNES or the NES or the Genesis style better? Genesis, 100%. Yeah, it sounds like it to me. I mean, it, you just sound very enthusiastic when you're talking about it. Yeah, it, it, it makes me smile. Um, the, the, <laughs> like, it, And that's not to take away from the Nintendo or the Super Nintendo. Like, you load me up with like the piano sample with the proper SNES Echo from Chrono Trigger. I will write you a song, no problem, and I will love every minute of it. But there's something about FM that I feel almost like FM is, is an underdog or that it didn't get it a fair shake. Like, when people think about the 80s, they usually, you know, kind of laugh a bit. Like, oh, the 80s were this goofy time. And, like, but I don't, I don't see it like that. Like, I really think FM has this potential. It's like when you, like I said earlier in our in the show here, I always ask what year something was made so I, I can compare it to other things and, and know if it influenced them or if it could have influenced them. And I feel like FM died way before it should have because when keyboards in the late 80s came out they started doing sampling technology like the Super Nintendo had and uh, they could well we don't need to simulate the rock guitar anymore now we'll just have a rock guitar sample and so yeah. FM it didn't get to live its lifespan out correctly like it got pushed to the side too quickly and I feel like and, and, and in the early 90s people who used FM sounds would be seen as kind of dorky like there was a time from like 94 to 98 where it wasn't cool to like 80s stuff like it was really embarrassing to like right stuff from the <laughs> 80s and and yeah. the fm is like at the kernel of that like you can't like this stuff you know like you said it, there was i believe for a long time too that the super nintendo was the better sound chip just because like i felt like their stuff sounded more professional and i was like oh well, if you were to just give random people a demonstration of what video game music was like i probably wouldn't pick an fm track to show them over like say like final fantasy track say like here's your example of video game music but now like i just know how to explain it more like if you compare shining force 2 which i think is the finest fm soundtrack on the console the the sega genesis and i was gonna pick one of their songs but i decided to go with war song instead okay well like you know how i said the super nintendo was like an exponential version of the nes where like they have eight channels now that they're using to their fullest well the the genesis was like that but even more so because they still didn't have the samples to benefit their like slap bass or guitar like they still mm -hmm. had to simulate those sounds and so mm -hmm. what the genesis would do a lot was they had these psg channels they had three of them so they could hit square waves as well and in terms of nes sounds it would be the 50 percent duty cycle square wave so it's, it's kind of just a sine wave it kind of sounds like 
And so what they would do with that is they would pair a lot of their leads with a square wave playing at the same time. And the square waves gave everything this really smooth sound to it. So it's not just FM. They add this sort of concept to the way of writing music where they, they add the square wave to add smoothness. And so with the Treasure Buster soundtrack, like a lot of the people that do Genesis chiptunes now, they don't actually use those PSG square waves because I don't know if they don't know about it or, or one of the reasons is they might be using software that doesn't have the square waves. Like it might just have the FM. Like I don't know if Defil Mask, which is kind of a tracker, I don't know if they have the square waves now. They, they might now, but they didn't for a long time. Using those square waves, you, you have to break, you have to, you know, like rip every channel and look at them separately to see like, oh, the square wave was mixing with this to create this sound. And, you know, so to get the authentic Genesis sound, you have to use those square waves. So to tie it all back around, like, I like working with Genesis the most because I feel like there's the most untapped potential there. Like when you get to samples, it's kind of done. Everything's done. It, it rests on how good the samples sound and then how good you can manipulate those samples to sound like fuller or more realistic. But with Genesis, like there's, I just feel like they're, they're, it wasn't explored enough. They could have gone further, I guess is how I would put it. For sure. Yeah. And especially like the, the Sonic the Hedgehog soundtracks are probably one of the best uses of combining that that PSG and FM because those tones kind of meld together so yeah. well and it's not until you like finally get in there with like VGM player or something and start you know stripping out all of the FM stuff mm -hmm. and you realize that there's these these you know melodic helpers all these square waves kind of helping the song become more full behind it and you're like oh I didn't even realize that that was there the whole time so mm -hmm. yeah I totally understand what you're what you're talking about there I think that being said Sega Genesis, I think, has the potential to sound the worst as well. There is some oh, yeah. god awful oh. soundtracks on the Genesis. Anything using the GEMS driver, which we've talked about in the past, uh, a lot of it is pretty rough sounding. Or anything so. sadly composed <laughs> by like American composers. Like, for some reason, yeah. Americans just did not know what to do with the FM <laughs> hardware. True. <sighs> All right, well, let's jump in from the old to the new. This is a little bit newer. This is L.A. Noir, and this is 2011's release on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. Uh, this is the main theme. Matt picked this one, and it's by Andrew Hale and Simon Hale.
Everybody wake up. That was L.A. Noir, 2011. Ed, wake up. Oh, that was a great dream. PlayStation 3, Xbox 360. The track was the main theme by Andrew Hale and Simon Hale. Other than The Getaway, which they both worked on, they worked on L.A. Noir, and that was it. Turned into a ninja, poof. American ninja. <laughs> well, I mean, the, with the, the way the soundtrack is, they're, they're probably working on more, like, commercial music and stuff. Yeah. Uh, or production music, because it has that kind of sound to it. Just Miles Davis. Just oh, oozes yeah. Miles Davis. Yeah. So, so Matt, this is another kind of surprising pick, at least for, for my perspective. Why, why did you pick this one for the show? When we're talking about themes, like the, the melody, the actual theme of this track, this is another one, like, you get me on the right mood, and, like, I can I can crack out a tear to this track. This is a, this is one where, like, when that trumpet comes in, it's just something about that melody that, uh, like, I I can put my own story to it. Like, it just, it's something personal to me, that, that trumpet melody. So one, I wanted to kind of share a diverse spectrum here. It didn't, I didn't want it all to be, like, orchestral, bombastic, crazy tracks, but, sure. you know, in the grand scheme of things, I've listened to this track more than, than most. Uh, like, I, this is a track I actually listen to a lot, and when I would load up this game, uh, like I said, in the the break there i would just watch the title screen with the lights flickering uh like the little halogen lights they had there and just listen to this track at least until that trumpet part comes in and i used to do (laughs) the same thing with mass effect too like the song at the start of mass effect was another one that i was (laughs) maybe gonna pick but that's another like low-key sort of you know mellow track Mm -hmm. this is something about this theme yeah really gets me yeah i I really like the um like the combination of the vibraphone and the the brush drum kit it just feels so smooth yo brush drums is the way to go when you want smooth. Oh, especially for this genre. Yeah. 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 Funny that you guys mentioned smooth because Andrew Hale is actually uh, one of the composers who's been working with Jade uh, her whole career. So smooth okay. operator. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. All right. All right. That, <laughs> that makes, makes sense. sense. So my yeah. commercial uh, yeah. commercial composition. You nailed kinda. it. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. Jade's uh, a phenomenal artist and like all oh, of her definitely. albums in the 80s, like they're some of my favorite stuff and her vocals are some of my favorite vocals ever. Um, so it was when I saw that he was writing the music for this game, uh, like that that is another one of those things where it added a little piece to it like what a cool time we live in where like this is the kind of music we have in games now or potentially like you can get this kind of music in a game so it's, uh, it's a hell of a time yeah. Yeah. yeah no Jade is is really good actually very underrated yes. and uh, her voice is very like sultry and jazzy yet still like has this almost like exotic feel to it in a way yeah well it's, it's very uh, baritone like it's, it's a very yeah. low voice and for such a small person too she really belts out a, like a deep sort of strong voice and it's that's funny I remembered uh, playing the beginning of L.A. Noir and like just never finishing it but I didn't remember why and I'm looking at the date 2011 that this came out and I realized that was the year my youngest son was born oh, so I go. had a four year old and an infant at the house like no wonder I didn't have any time to play nope. video games <laughs> nope, <laughs> it's probably because nope. I was too busy like elbow deep in diapers and uh, matchbox cars to yes. to do anything other than sometimes matchbox cars in diapers oh that's not yeah that probably happened at least one <laughs> yeah, or two times probably yeah probably Ugh. gross anyhow so yeah so so the game itself uh pretty much kind of follows this this kind of theme it's a very authentic kind of 1930s kind of like an interactive game. Yeah. um game yeah in, in like a, a film noir ways. style really interactive movie in a lot of ways uh it's by rockstar so it was kind of gritty um, it wasn't exactly for kids, which is probably another reason I couldn't play it very much yeah. in the house. Mm. But yeah, I remember it, the voice acting being really good. I remember uh, all the characters were like motion captured. Uh, so it felt like, yeah, like you were watching a movie, like, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, Metal Gear Solid style. Definitely. Like, uh, equal parts movie to game kind of a feel to it. Yeah, yeah. 
This game actually had a feature that I wish more games would lean into where if you fail a mission three times, it gives you an, a prompt saying like, hey, do you just want to skip the action sequence here? And <laughs> that, I feel like game developers, this is one thing, like maybe if any of them are listening, like you have to remember that there's people out there that haven't been playing games their whole life that they don't intuitively understand what's going on. And like, whereas all of us, we can lose a mission and we know what they're trying to go for. We can tell immediately when we're put into an action sequence, like, oh, I think they want me to shoot that thing or, or do mm-hmm. this. Like, mm-hmm. But there's people out there that they don't have that. And you're ruining, or you're not ruining, but you're excluding them from your games by, by not having like, what is essentially like a, I am a beginner feature. And I, I feel like games, like even like a Bioshock game, if you just had a I am a beginner feature, like legit beginner, and it's one shot, it just kills a guy. Like, because people can't even aim in some of these games. Yeah, and, it's and true. Like, there's great storylines too. Like these games have cool stories and the music and everything. And for people not to be able to experience it just because they don't know how to use this eight button, like mm-hmm. dual wielding controller. like <laughs> So that's why I really appreciated that this game had that because I watched what, uh, my wife go through this game in particular and seeing having that option there, she didn't always take it, but you know, she's... Every time you lose a mission or something, like, the frustration grows. Especially if you're doing, like, a, uh, what do they call it? Like, a tailgating mission or or where Mm -hmm. you have to, like, tail someone. And if they spot you, oh, mission failed. Like, those are just so monotonous that people that are getting into games right now, they don't really understand, like, oh, don't worry. Like, it's not your fault. That's just a BS mission. Like, that... They're, they're going to happen. And then people are going to be more likely just to put the game down and never finish it, you know, yes. rather than, than work at it and work at it and work at it. So I can imagine being a kid now and trying to play a Contra game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the world that we grow, you know, well, that they're a, growing up it's, in. It's funny you say that because when I got Venture Kid, I have the family share on on my iPad. My sure. kids both have iPads, so yeah. it automatically downloaded to both of their iPads. So I see I walk into the kitchen one day and they're both playing Venture Kid and like, you know, trying to like get to the second level because that was that was the big thing. They couldn't sure. even get past the first level. <laughs> but it was fun like hearing the music coming from, you know, both of the iPads kind of like in sync with each other mm-hmm. and they're both playing together and but it was like, you know, they were bad at it because they've never played Mega Man before. Right. And they don't they don't have any sort of concept of side scrolling. Everything is 3D, you know. Right, you're right. manipulating objects in a 3D environment. So when mm-hmm. you put these like paper flat objects, it's like it's it's it's, it's impossible. I, it was difficult for them to get their mind around. Yeah, so yeah. Wow, like that's the reverse for us, yeah. That's, yeah, that's the exactly. opposite way. Yep. Yeah. Totally backwards. It's totally from strange, how we are. yeah. Because so, we, we grew up on 2D. And kind of evolved the 3D. Games evolved with us, which right. is great because right. now we're proficient in both. Right. But for mm-hmm. kids that are that that you know young kids mm-hmm. now, like my 11 year old, forget it. Don't put him in front of a 2D game ever. No. He's first person shooter wow. all the way. Right. So wow. Yeah, it's, it's it's like it's like our version of like you know Charlie Chaplin films. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. they, they they look at them like black and white you know silent movies or something <laughs> we'll just be all walking uh, around with like 1930s and 40s accents like hey there sonny do you want to play some super yeah, mario Brothers? i hear the new mega man just came out today oh <laughs> well boy put on that mega man let's jump into our very last track uh this is matchland this is ed's final pick and this is in-game music
And we're back. That was in-game music from Matchland, composed by Matthew Kramer. I chose this track because when I was listening to it, I was kind of reminded of the Joe and Mac soundtrack on the SNES, especially like kind of like that, that B section, the later part, where a lot of those kind of like almost caveman style. Xylophone. Like, yeah, like the percussive yeah. uh, elements kind of came in. And that was one of my favorite soundtracks growing up. So it was, it was kind of like nice to find a little parallel. It's a very smooth style soundtrack. Now, was this composed to be in the SNES style, Matt, or was it just kind of, because it, it almost kind of feels like SNES, but then it feels a little more cleaner than SNES would be, too. Yeah, this one, uh, like, it's just a concept I have called HD memory, where <laughs> you remember the way the SNES sounds, but uh, maybe not us, because we're too close, but the <laughs> average person remembers the SNES as sounding a lot better than it actually did yep, sound. Yeah. So when you plunk them down and say, like, here, listen to what it actually sound like, they probably cringe a lot. <laughs> so the key for, like, a, a composer is to know why the music sounded good back in the day, but make it sound like people think it sounded like. So you you need to know what the limitations were, but know how to break them with without like breaking the whole thing. And so with this, like I'm I'm sort of mixing in Super Nintendo sounds. And the developer initially wanted like this is actually the same developer as Swap Heroes. Okay. okay. So initially the developer said. Yeah, we, we like the Super Nintendo sounds, but we don't want it to be authentic. Like, we don't need it to be authentic. Mm -hmm. So, the sky's the limit in terms of that. So, it's composed sort of like a Super Nintendo song, but I'm using synth, and I'm, I actually bought specifically for this, like, a marimba sample library, so I could get that sort of xylophone mm -hmm. sound and have it be a little more velvety than if it were just, like, a Super Nintendo sound. And uh, that's kind of the name of the game for, for a lot of the projects I'm working on these days, is, is to do sort of mix the Super Nintendo sounds with the actual versions of them, so, like, string sounds, too. I didn't do it in this one, but to mix Super Nintendo string sounds with actual string orchestra sample libraries and then like sort of compress them together so they, they sort of fuse and mesh. Did you find that composing in this kind of, you know, quote unquote HD memory style to be easier than following the limitations of the Super Nintendo or... Uh, were they were they about the same? It really depends on what the developer asks for. Because mm. there's a, there's another game I'm working on called Dice Mage 2 that should be out soon. And uh, it was I made it roughly as soon as this project ended. I started Dice Mage 2, so it was I was using kind of a lot of the same concepts, and they wanted a lot of the same concepts as well. In fact, both developers asked for SNES Plus, so that was that was basically mm. their description. Like it doesn't have to be SNES, but like that's kind of where we're we're starting here, and then everything else you want to add is okay. And that developer for Dice Mage kind of asked for different stuff and that made it easier so it's, it's a matter of what they want me to do because they're basically commissioning me to make something and right. so their their criteria is what I go by and, and maybe other composers that are a little more diva like they can be like no you're getting <laughs> what I give you and that's, that's fine <laughs> but like I, I kind of agonize over their description so I, I keep asking them like you got to send me more descriptive words and, and just examples of other tracks that kind of hit the sound for you and maybe I should stop doing that because it always just makes it worse on my part unless the <laughs> developer has like easier stuff like there's certain types of music that I write more naturally and this Matchland for example is not something I would write naturally like if you sat me down in a room mm -hmm. and said hey write some music it would never come out sounding like this this is a, a direct sort of uh, response to the criteria that the developer had because it's almost like a puzzle game for me like okay you've given me all your criteria and now I have to try and make a song in my style with your criteria so it's, right, it's a lot right, like yeah. Nintendo limitations where like oh, I want to write a death metal track through these limitations <laughs> so I, I want to write one of your tracks through my own limitations or the other way I want to write my own track through your limitations it's funny that you mentioned the diva thing because now all I can think of and I'm sure that he's not all this I'm, I'm sure he's a very nice guy or whatever but I could just picture like Jake Coffin be like 
to the to the game developers being like, no, I am Jake Kaufman and you will dance to this. <laughs> like, don't even. <laughs> like, this is yeah. your track. It's going to rock. It's going to be dancey. You will like it. Well, it's funny because when uh, we were talking to Matt Furness on when we had him on our show and he was talking about how like in the very early days when he started out, when he was working on mm-hmm. uh, Amiga and, 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 you know, a lot of the earlier uh, Atari ST and stuff like that, you know, he would just write a song, hand it in, and the developers would be like, cool, we'll just sit, like, maybe didn't even oh, listen to it. We'll just yeah. stick it right in the game. <laughs> right, right. But then as he got, you know, higher and higher up the levels and he started working for Disney, you know, he would have to do, like, 12, 13, 14 rewrites, right. you know, until everything sounded correct. And I feel like that's kind of, like, where the mobile and the indie scene is getting to now, where, like, originally when, when these games started off, composers had it really easy, where mm-hmm. they could just write a song, throw like it whatever. in, boom, we don't care. Oh, it's, it's action music? Background music. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. But now it's like it's getting to that point where, you know, people are getting much more concerned about the, the marketing and the branding of their of their game because the, the market is so competitive right yeah, now. Yeah. Is that is that kind of how you feel about the whole thing too, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. That's what made this track kind of hard to compose. Like it seems like a really simple track and it shouldn't have been hard to compose, but this type of game, like a match three puzzle game that has sort of microtransactions in it, they they don't want a track that's gonna challenge the the gamer. So I'm this bombastic songwriter. You look at all the stuff I made before I made music for games. It was all like I made an 8-bit death metal album for gosh sakes. Like mm-hmm. that's that's like I come from like wanting to push things to their absolute extreme. Like you mm. give me limitations and I'm going to see exactly how far they can go and then the next time I'll go even further. And so with this game, they're like, "Look, we don't want the uh, we don't want the gamer to uh, want to stop playing, you know? Like we want them to to like have this thing in the background that makes them feel good about playing the game. Mm-hmm. We don't ever want them to feel bad about playing the game." Like the idea is like if you lose the game you don't want them to be like oh i lost you want them to be like oh i'll try again or i'll yeah, play yeah. again right right and so like the whole background my background was like if you were to break it down it would be like this gamer is going to hate themselves when they lose the game like <laughs> it, i'm going to write the saddest most like savage song like you lost and you i can't believe it you should right, feel bad right. yeah, yeah yeah like you should feel so terrible about yourself and uh you know it doesn't work for games that are like this so it's been a fun challenge i guess to uh, to try and be a composer for games nowadays especially mobile games because they need a different type of music and it's not music that i necessarily want to write on my own and i I, one thing I always I hope people don't think like oh this is the kind of music that you know Matt Creamer writes it's like this is the kind of music I write based on these criteria like right. this is it's all it's it's more like that whereas uh, a game like Treasure Buster that was a game that also was a mobile game me and the developer for that game uh, we were talking just uh, on Skype and I said man my ideal project would because I, I just come off a really hard project a, a, like a year and a half working on it game never came out I wrote an hour of music that got oh. rejected oh. Um, and an hour that's accepted but the game's still not coming out so like that was Jeez. a really tough, tough project for me to work on. Sure. And so me and that developer, we were talking. I'm like, man, my ideal project would just be a game where every song is the last level, and like <laughs> every song is a boss theme, and every not just a boss theme, but the final boss theme. I want a game where like every song is like insane. Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay, let's do that for Treasure Buster. So nice. Treasure Buster Sweet. was like there was no limits. It was just like go, go, go. Yeah. Right. And in, in fact, he was the only developer I've ever worked for where he's like, can you make it faster? Like, could it be more intense? I'm like, yeah. Again. <laughs> like I just came from the ringer where it's like actually one of the things for the game that got uh, 
cut that didn't get released. They said they wanted a track that was strange and dangerous. Those were the two criteria that they gave me. So I'm like, all right, like okay. if you want a strange and dangerous track, like I know how to do that and I mm -hmm. will give you a very strange and very dangerous track. <laughs> and uh, their criteria or their re response or their criticism after it was, I guess it's just a little too strange and dangerous. Like, <laughs> and I, I loved that so much. I almost put it on my business card. <laughs> a little too strange and dangerous. A little too strange and dangerous. That is hilarious. <laughs> the, uh, like I included on the soundtrack the original pitch that I sent for Matchland and like just the difference between that and what actually ended up in the game like it's very funny that this is what I think it should sound like like just fast track that's like kind of energetic down to like super mellow and like just kind of playful like it's funny that it works out that way yeah definitely yeah. all right so what we want to do just to wrap it up is we want to ask you some like rapid fire like last minute questions just to kind of wrap everything up and get everyone's questions that, that did ask questions uh, on our Facebook group or uh, sent in emails to Pixel Tunes Radio so from Ben also known as the Dyad he asked what programs do you use to compose VGM he said I'm assuming Famitracker for Retro City Rampage, but the Matchland soundtrack, for example, isn't chip tune at all. Cubase is where all the music gets written now. Uh, if I can, if I can do it, like if I needed to do Nintendo music now, if there was a way I could do it in Cubase and have it like hit that sort of HD memory, I would do it just because it's easier from a, like a, a composition point. Like that's one of the reasons why I would use ModPlug is because uh, composition is the most important thing to me. And I found that because of that double click thing, I said that Family Tracker was really hard for me to use and it was hindering my composition abilities. It's mostly Cubase now. If I can help it, but yeah, all the Nintendo stuff was mod plug just because for some reason I couldn't I couldn't gel with like the just like the nuts and bolts of how Family Tracker worked, even though right. it is a it, it is the one I should have been using mm -hmm. realistically. Right, right. Okay. Ben also asks, uh, who are your VGM influences? Kenichi Matsubara made the yeah. music for Castlevania 2. Yeah, um, yeah. And he's not credited, which is crazy. So he's not credited in the game anyways. But uh, so I don't I don't know how that was ever found out. But that's the name that floats around on the Internet now. But he's also uh, responsible for apparently Crisis Force as well, which is a game I never played as a kid. Yeah, it's Famicom uh, only. Yeah, Famicom only. But that's one of the best Nintendo soundtracks I find out there right now. Yeah, so this yeah. guy, he's just like, that's kind of the neat thing about these Nintendo composers. They're like idols to a lot of us, but they just don't exist. They're they're gone. Like, I don't right. know, even know where this guy is now, where he <laughs> yeah. was. And he wrote this music 30 years ago. Mm hmm. And that's one for sure. Castlevania 2 was a game that like I, ha I had as a kid. And when you get into Dracula's Castle, I remember that's kind of the example of where I was never happy with poppy sounding Nintendo music. I was mm -hmm. always happy with like the ones that made me feel gross in my stomach. Like, yeah. like Same that here, Dracula's yeah. Castle song. It's just an arpeggio, but it's and there's no enemies in the castle either. Like it's I haunting. It's a, yeah, it's it a haunting. very, very haunting moment in yes. that game because it's like there's no enemies and it's just you feel like something's yeah. going to pop out of you. Yeah. Yes. This is moment of dread that Definitely. all the way up to the boss. Yeah, dread is a great way to put it too. And yes. uh, so that was a good one. And I always find it weird that he's not credited in the game. Uh, but I also really like, and I've never even pronounced this before, Shigemasa Matsuo from Roller Games and Base Wars. Okay. Okay. Old Konami guy. Yeah. 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 But yeah, Roller Games is a game uh, that was one of the first games I ever bought used from uh, a, like a store we have. I actually live right next to the store now, but it's a store called Willow Video. And it was the first uh, video game store that I ever saw selling used games. And uh, Roller Games was one of the first ones I ever bought, and uh, the soundtrack for it just happens to be like one of my all-time favorite on the NES. Yeah, it's good. It's definitely yeah, good. That's that's a great one. And yeah, same guy made Base Wars, which I actually owned as a kid straight up. So, you know, I, just, I ended up growing up with a lot of this guy's music or girl. I don't even know if that's a male or female name, but he did the music for Batman Returns as well, I think, which was also pretty rockin' sounding. Yeah, yeah. But then, yeah, we go right down to Ikumizutani. Like, that's that's one of the staples. Like, when I first found yes. out about NSFs, that was the guy. Like, oh, mm -hmm. okay. Like, because I, I knew about H. Meizawa because I'd beaten the game tons of times, Contra. 
I've beaten the game yep. tons of times, but it was fun to learn about these new composers, like around the the late 90s uh, yes. with NSFs and stuff. Like you'd find these composers, and I needed to know more. I want to know more games that this person worked. I still do yeah. that. Mm -hmm. You're able to like connect connect the dots. All these games that you played when you were a kid, you right. didn't realize the same person was behind all of them. Mm -hmm. It's really yeah. cool. Definitely. Uh, but then Ninja Gaiden, Kiji Yamagishi, big mm -hmm. fan. Yep. All the Tecmo stuff, like Tecmo Super Bowl, especially. Like what yes. a great soundtrack that yes. is. Even though the songs are like 30 seconds long, the tiniest little loops, but, uh, and a little like backstory, I'm sure they're short loops because the d the producers were saying the game, or the developers might have said to the composer, like the, the gameplay only lasts for like 30 seconds. It doesn't need to be a longer track. So, right. yeah. so write it short. That's what I get a lot with games now. They're like, well, this, this little screen where you open up a treasure chest is only like 10 seconds long. So it doesn't need to be a long track, even though by default, I want to write long tracks that have this long evolving melody, but. Um, all right, so we're gonna jump over to Daniel Lawton's question. He asked, given the diversity of music composed between Venture Kid to Retro City Rampage to 8-bit death metal, what inspires you to compose music the way you do? Yeah, it really depends on the medium and it depends on the the concept. Like I said, sometimes I'm like, oh, I want a galloping, I want a galloping riff in this song, and then the song just creates itself from there. But other times with uh, with 8-bit death metal, that was a concept as well. Like I want to hear what 8-bit death metal would sound like. And and with that, um, you start to think like, okay, well the Nintendo had that DPCM channel that could play uh, little rough samples and sometimes vocal samples as well, like Blades of Steel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that that alone got me thinking like, well, okay, if you were to do death metal on the Nintendo, you could do vocals on that DPCM channel if you wanted, if it could handle like a long enough track. So it's like, all right, I'm breaking the limitations. The Nintendo could never hold something that that big, but this is what it would sound like if you could. So the the concept usually is where I start, especially with chiptunes. So because I, I've also learned that uh, Melodia Di Infinita, the, the first chiptune album I put out, is a good example of like, if I don't have a theme, it just kind of ends up sounding like that. Like that's kind of me in my natural raw state. But when I do have a theme, like, I guess Matchline's a good example too, like instead of using 8-bit death metal, they were saying, can you make it sound like a match 3 microtransaction kind of game? So it always involves me learning as much as I can about whatever that theme is. And with 8-bit death metal, it's funny, I used to be, I used to have to do like an hour-long commute to and from uh, BCIT, just a technical institute in BC that I would go to. And the whole last year of that, of going to BCIT, I was just like, I want to write music, I don't want to be here. Um, and so I would drive into school and I'd have this notepad on the passenger seat in my car with, with a pen and a notepad. And I would like no look, write down the time indexes of the tracks I was listening to at the time. And I'm like, <laughs> learn how they did this. Like this is, yeah. I need to learn like not, not, not only like the death metal drum beats and stuff. Like I needed to learn exactly like when you think about a blast beat, like is it kick first, then snare or is it snare first, then kick? Like right, right. different bands do it different ways. So I mm -hmm. would always have all these indexes. I have a whole booklet full of indexes of things that I'm like, learn this, learn that. And it, it was not just death metal, but it was also 70s prog where they had a lot of um, time signatures that I was not aware of. And so I would take their their drum signatures or their drum patterns and uh, transcribe them into NES stuff. A, a lot like Castlevania 2 has that Dwelling of Doom song that is exactly note for note uh, Ingve Malmsteen song. Mm -hmm. um, right, Far right. Beyond the Sun, I think, yep. I can't yep. remember. But it's like note for note. And so yeah. you, you guarantee yourself that, okay, they were listening to that album when they wrote that Nintendo song. Like they couldn't have not. Yeah, so yeah. So I doing, I'm doing kind of the same thing when I come up with these limitations. Like I play the role of the producer, the developer, and the composer, and I just come up with like, I always just picture this funny scene of like, 
the producer walks in and just throws a bunch of tapes down on a table and says, make the game sound like these. And, and it's like, here's some Iron Maiden and here's some of this. And then the developer's like, oh, geez, I don't know. We only have the sound chip. How do we make this stuff? Like, it's not my problem. Just make it sound like it. So Alex Messenger asks, is Norrin Rad composing music for Shakedown Hawaii? Heck yeah, he is. Awesome. awesome. Sweet. Very cool. <laughs> Looking forward Very to cool. that. That'll be awesome. Yeah, uh, no no vert this time, though. It's just uh, I'm solo in this one. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So everyone will be glad to know about that. I actually didn't even know that myself, so that's awesome. Yeah, that's going to be great. Um, and then I think Ed has a question, then I have a question. Oh, yeah. Uh, one last question for me. Uh, so during your studies, the way we were just talking about this kind of stuff, during your studies of how each console worked before you started composing in that style, which of those consoles surprised you the most in terms of complexity or capability? I, I guess, I, like, I knew the other two, like, I knew Nintendo and I knew Genesis were very complex going in, but I had no idea how complex complicated the Super Nintendo was and, and like I said coming from there was a point in time maybe like eight years ago I would have actively said like I don't like Super Nintendo music because I think it's too easy to make like <laughs> I was that egotistical and that like stuck up about it even though I, I had a lot of Super Nintendo music I liked I just didn't care to listen to it over say Genesis or NES but once I had sure. to do that Swap Heroes game that was where I, like, I ate all of my words. Like, there's posts you can find to me on, like, old forums where I'm, like, poo-pooing Super Nintendo music, like, <laughs> But, man, I ate my words hard. Like, they put so much more effort into Super Nintendo music than I than I ever gave them credit for. And mm -hmm. it's just as complicated as Genesis and everything else. Uh, the thing is, like, Super Nintendo music can sound crappy, too. Like, if you get, like, Wayne's World for Super Nintendo, <laughs> yeah, or, like, yeah, yeah. it's not going to sound great. It's going to exactly. sound bad. But the, the best Super Nintendo music, especially that early, first sort of generation Super Nintendo music, yep, yep. they were exactly as inspired by the limitations as the Nintendo were. Like, they were innovating in ways that, like, you would not expect them to innovate. Uh, like, even, like, Lavos and his voice, like, <laughs> they they did stuff that you don't think about, and no one would know, like, until you, like, crack open these ROMs and see. So, yeah, Super Nintendo, I, I'll never poo-poo it again. Super Nintendo is legit, and, uh, and it, you know, I love the sound. I, I loved it. I always loved it. I just thought it was too easy to make. But it's it, having made it now, it's it's not easy to make at all. And it's it's. it's you gave uh, me a you know, new appreciation for it too. So definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, my final question is: Which video game IP would you love to work on? Mass Effect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was uh, I, when Mass Effect came out. Was right around the time that Drive the movie came out. Oh yeah. And uh, I was I wasn't using Cubase at the time. Uh, I was still using mod plug only to make my music and and that that's a long story too i just i didn't feel like learning how to use midi and cubase so i just put mm -hmm. it off for like 10 years <laughs> and so when mass effect came out and when drive came out and just the the synth that they had uh, it was very reminiscent of the 80s and not the fm 80s but like the synth 80s which was another big part of the 80s right and so that was it i was like all right i gotta learn this stuff i gotta i gotta get into this now that was it those the, the drive soundtrack which you know wasn't even super synthy it just the the aesthetic of the movie and then mass effect which was very synthy like the the title screen for mass effect was another one i almost picked so yeah mass effect um it reminds me of a perfect mix between star trek and star wars and and like maybe blade runner because a lot of the music as well and uh it was the perfect ip and Gosh dang it, they they buried it. They threw it under the bus. It's the saddest thing. Um, but yeah, the Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3, I, some of the best moments in video gaming that I've ever had were from that series. And I would have loved to work on it at the time. Nowadays, 
Maybe not so much. Uh, I think the IP is maybe a little toxic now. Like, look, I got to a point where I read the three novels that came out. Like, I was oh, wow. deep into Mass Effect. You were Effect. into it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, like, I was, like, on message forums saying, like, no, I think this is what's going on with the ending and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, I was deep. But, like That's I cool. said, it got me into making music that, that all the music that I hear now or that I'm making now. But, um, you know, it's just something to do with synth and, and maybe cyberpunk and sci-fi. Like, I, I'm i way into that stuff, even though I've never really had an excuse to write it. Like, I, I wrote a, basically a cyberpunk song that's kind of like Blade Runner meets NeverEnding Story or something like that. Okay. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a movie sort of soundtrack. And that's kind of where, if I didn't have to write music for games, like, where they're giving me the criteria, that would be the criteria that I give myself. So Mass Effect was a, a pretty close approximation of, like, what I would like to be doing if I had no other obligation. Awesome. Okay, very cool. cool. All right, well, we want to thank everyone who sent in questions. Uh, Emily from VGM Jukebox, uh, Ben the Dyad, Chris Murray, Daniel Lawton, Alex Messenger, Brian Mosley, and Cam Childs. Thank you very much for sending in questions. And we also want to, of course, thank our guest, uh, Norrin Rad, uh, which, by the way, Norrin Rad, obviously a reference to Silver Surfer, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I figured, yes. <laughs> uh, so we want to thank you, uh, Matt Creamer, for stopping by Pixel Tunes Radio and chatting with us. Definitely, thank you very much. Yeah, we had a blast, dude. We learned so much. Like I said uh, before, it's it's so nice to have composers on the show because you give us a whole new perspective mm-hmm. on like the behind the scenes stuff that because you know Mike and I aren't composers. We just right. we really love video game music, so uh, it, it's always nice to get some some insider information from guys like you. So again, thank you so much for for chilling out with us for a couple hours today. Oh my gosh, it's been my pleasure, guys. And like I said, uh, you guys have you guys have given me perspective on stuff too. So, you know, don't go poo-pooing yourselves. Like you guys are, <laughs> you're a key part of this. Like you guys are on the on the other end of the of the music, and it's it's really great to hear from you guys and and how you interpret the music and, and what you enjoy about the music as well. It's, it's been really fun uh, having this chat with you guys. Yeah, awesome. it's just nice to give spotlight to the guys that, that do video game music. So speaking of which, where can we find your stuff on the web? I know you have YouTube and Bandcamp and, and all that stuff going on. Uh, well, I got my, my website's usually where everything sort of funnels through. So mattcreameraudio.com. So most of the links, like if, if, if worst case scenario, you just go there and there's links to like my social media and my Bandcamp and my YouTube. But yeah, I have YouTube and I have some blogs and stuff. But yeah, just go to the website uh, if you really need to. But if you type in Norrinrad22, usually things will come up that like that's the crappy thing since it's the Silver Surf. I didn't realize at the time you can't go back on your internet name once you've got it. So there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of Norrinrads out there. So it's a little <laughs> frustrating, but. Matt Creamer Audio, probably the best way to go. We'll make cool. sure to post it in the show notes, of course, so everybody can find you. I oh, appreciate it. And and as, as far as, you know, Bandcamp and his soundtracks go, they're all pay what you want. So, you know, definitely, if you like the stuff that you've heard today, throw the man a couple dollars, you know, yes. could download some cool stuff. I personally recommend Treasure Buster. That's my absolute favorite. I bought the Venture, Venture Kid is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Retro City Rampage is a little bit different because that's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a concerted effort with a couple different right. composers. So, so you have a couple of, uh, you know, non-VGM albums that you've put out mm-hmm. too, right? Like Anomaly, for example, that's one that, like, it wasn't for a video game. Yeah, yeah, any of right, the death right. metal and that kind of stuff. Okay. So there's, there's still some stuff that we haven't played on the show that you can go here. Yes, very cool. Yeah, the uh, the Name Your Price thing was very important for me. You know, I always, uh, when you think about some of the composers uh, from cartoons in the 80s, like DuckTales, for example, like, you just, you can't really find that music anywhere. I, I think it was Ron Jones that made the music for it, but like, he's got a few little samples on his website, but there's no archive of it, and that's that's one thing I always wanted to avoid. Like, there should always be access to this stuff yeah. in the future yeah. if people want to uncover it, you know? Definitely. That's going to do it for episode 93. Guys, thanks so much for listening. I know this was a long one. We really appreciate you, and also 
Matt Creamer. Again, check him out at mattcreameraudio.com. As always, you can check us out on facebook.com slash groups slash Radio. You can check us out on Twitter at Radio, And you can check out our YouTube stream at youtube.com slash dongled. Episode 94 will be Light Gun Games. So stay tuned for that. And again, this is Mike and Ed signing off for Pixel Tunes Radio. Peace out, everyone. We will see you next time.